Howdy, everybody. Welcome to another BP Movie Journal. We're back. You say another as though uh, we've had a whole bunch of them. It feels we, like we have had a whole bunch of them up to up until a point, and then yeah. we we the, inadvertently took one month off. Yeah. The triumphant return. That's the way I look at yeah, it. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, it was just scheduling. We couldn't find a time to fit it in. Yeah. in the past month. That's it's how, been a crazy how like six weeks. We are. For, yeah, for my, me at least. My my May will continue. It's only halfway through May. My May will continue to be nuts. Ugh. Um, and, uh, and then June is LA film fest and we got, we have our super secret thing we're doing at the beginning of June. Oh yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then I'm going to Palm Springs and then July is you're going to Palm Springs for what? Yeah. Just, uh, um, the, the, the wife and I, when she, uh, uh, we, we bought a little, uh, I don't know if it was a, a grouping or if it was a living social, one of those, um, for you know she's been working super hard in his yeah. finals right now and she's yeah. she's back getting her masters so uh when she's done with school um we are going to palm springs have you been to palm springs before uh for a night yeah when a couple of years ago no I like what time of the year june okay hot jen and i went in 2007 it was for an, an anniversary thing and also a little celebratory thing because i i quit blockbuster and was thrilled um and uh and we went in June, and it got up to 121 degrees. Wow, that's something. I don't think, I think it was about 115 when I was there. Yeah, or something like, like that. that is, I mean, obviously it's hot, but like that's, and it's a dry heat, so that's, but even at, like when you're into 120 territory, yeah. it's oppressively hot. Like the yeah. minute you walk outside, it's like, oh my gosh, this yeah. feels horrendous. You know, my, I, I've talked before, my sister and my mom live in Boise, Idaho yeah. now which we think of as like the Pacific Northwest or, or at least part of that region. It's not the Pacific Northwest cause it's not the Pacific, but it's in the Northwest. Further West than yeah. Yeah. Than like but Kansas, it, but and it's stuff. in the Northwest. Yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying? But it's high desert and this like, it routinely gets up. It was like 107 on 4th of July. There oh last year. I don't, you don't think of Boise as being a hot place, but it is yeah. in the summer. Most places are hot places. I don't like it. <laughs> I, I will take, I will take 110 degrees dry over 90 degrees humid oh, any day. Oh, absolutely. Because, yeah. yeah, it's... I remember there's a... In, in Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, the book... By the way, I'm David. Oh, I'm Tyler. In Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park, I remember he described... Because it takes place on an island. Mm-hmm. Uh, a tropical the, isle. That's the one. Off the coast of Costa Rica. Right. Island um, Nublar. That's the one. And... Uh, I remember it's describing John Hammond as like walking around and it being like so hot and humid. And I remember just the, there's just like little bits of description in in books and stuff that I'm like, that I pick up on. And that one was, uh, it's like breathing through a wet sponge. And I remember Southern Missouri in July (laughs) and just being like, damn right. Breathing through a wet sponge, except (laughs) it's all over your body. It's horrible. It's rough. No, thank you. If you uh, listeners, if you live in a humid climate, just get out. You know, nobody's Unless keeping it's worth it. Yeah, but it's not. I don't know. And as much as I do enjoy, I'll say this, the humidity makes me enjoy. Like if I'm taking a trip to target or something like that and you walk in and it's just a wall of consistent yeah. cool. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. glorious. It's yeah. like my, fa- it's like, Oh, this is my favorite day now. Do you ever think about, do you ever think about Las Vegas? Cause I think about Las Vegas a lot, especially since we were just talking about it, uh, with, um, a guest who hasn't been on the show yet. Yeah. He's been on the show, but the episode won't go up for a while. Right. Yes. yes. Um, uh, we were talking off air about Las Vegas, mm-hmm. I think. Um, that place has got to be just the worst for the environment because it's super hot and every casino 
it's not like you opened the door to the casino. Every casino was wide open to the street. Yeah. Like a big proscenium that leads into the <clears throat> And they're all, usually they have like two entrances. Yeah. And they're all just pumping, just blasting air conditioning. Oh, sure. And there's endless, the strip and the, the, and, and, and the, the old strip or whatever, are just like full of these. Yeah. It's, it's gotta be the worst. <laughs> just a, just a huge gap in the ozone above Las Vegas. I'm sure. Now, I know this sounds strange, but I guess I have no, I I don't think this is actually true, but I basically grew up assuming that the Hoover Dam was built because Las Vegas was there. I don't know. And I don't know if that's actually true. The Hoover Dam might've been created, might've been built before then or after or after. I don't remember, but, uh, it's the Hoover Dam is not a part of the movie Bugsy. So I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. If it's not (laughs) Bugsy, Bugsy, I'm out. Yeah. So, all right, we have a ton of we have a month's worth of yeah, stuff to talk about. We got about. a lot of shit to get to. Uh, but okay. I'll get through these first ones real quick uh, because of the fact that we already talked about them with uh, Scott and I, which is the um, it, this was the night after our last movie journal was recorded. I went to the Egyptian to see a night of Argentinian noir films, okay, including El, El Vampiro Negro, which is the um, uh, Argentinian retelling of M that, mm. that we talked about. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's really good. And the, 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 the other half of that, um, it was a double feature that was also kind of a quadruple feature mm. because the second film was like a three film anthology. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, and, uh, those, it was called like never open that door. And if I should die before I wake, I think are the names cool. of them. I can't remember. Um, Again, we already talked about these with Scott, so I don't need to spend too much time sure. on them. But uh, they're great, and it just makes me think, like, how many films are there out there that are super great that I've never heard of? Yeah, does does that thought depress you? Um, I don't think depressing is the word. I, I can... It can either make me very excited or it can make me very anxious. Okay. I, think I get okay. anxious about it, you yeah. know? It's sort of like uh, we talked with, or we will have talked with our guest that we haven't recorded yet about comic books and mm-hmm. how I've been trying to get a little bit more into comic books lately. But what I tend to do now is just like buy trade paperbacks and they sit on top of my the, yeah. the TV in the den, <laughs> and I haven't gotten. And I'll like find out about a title, and I'll be like, you know, uh, I, I've been wanting to read like um, what's her, uh, the Captain Marvel written by Kelly Sue DeConnick. Is that her name? Um, and it's just like, well, there's another like 60 bucks worth of like trade paperbacks. I'm yeah. going to have to buy. Yeah. And just sits above your TV and you look at it and think I should read that sometime back to mystery diner or whatever the hell it's called. <laughs> mystery diners. Yeah. Okay. There's, there's many of them. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's a, and I, I Again, feel like we probably, haven't talked about mystery diners yet. Yeah. What? <laughs> stay tuned uh yeah the um it's a thing it's it's a i think a silly idea but i think it's one that probably any film lover or maybe even art lover um can relate to i think which is like well look if i can't watch everything literally everything then what am i even doing yeah, here why like, don't I just why don't walk I just, into traffic exactly just walk into the ocean <laughs> solemnly <laughs> because yeah. uh there are so many so many worlds left to conquer uh, what's up for you? Uh, so I don't think this is in the right order for me. So I apologize. Uh, I've <laughs> apologize got to who no one would know. 
<laughs> no one's going to know what order you watch. Well, these because things. it might throw you off. Cause some of these are things we've, we've both seen. Oh, and so fine. like, so for me, the first one is Avengers age of Ultron. Okay. Well, let's which, talk about it, which we both saw. We both um, liked, both liked. I liked it a great deal. And we've talked a little bit about our response to it. Um, yeah. Uh, so many of my concerns going in, cause I mean, I thought it's like, this thing is going to be bloated. There's no possible way they're going to be able to develop character. It's not, it can't happen. They're going to be so busy introducing the twins and vision and Ultron. They're not going to have any time for the characters that exist. And yet I should have known better because it's Joss Whedon and he knows how to do an ensemble. Mm -hmm. And so by zeroing in on character, I think character relationships and then also revealing stuff about the characters that exist already that we don't know much about because they haven't had their own film. I think that's the best possible way to do it. I think, and he winds up, Really, I, I I feel like the film is partially a meditation on what heroism actually is, because when you've got this iron suit and you can fly around, when you're a demigod, when you're the Hulk, when you're a super soldier, sure, you're still choosing to be heroic, but it it costs you a little bit less. But when you're Black Widow or Hawkeye, it can cost you a lot because even though you're skilled, you're still just a person, yeah, and you're out of your depth a little bit. And, and this so, is going to be. Hawkeye's movie so much, which I, uh, which and who I would have thought that it would have been such a great idea to make it Hawkeye's movie. Yeah. Well, anyone who in retrospect, being a fan of Buffy, I should have known like, Oh, the guy without powers, that's the Xander of the group. Mm-hmm. And he's going to undergo this sort of Xander, like crisis of conscience. Like yeah. who would, do, am I necessary to this crew? Who am I? Yeah. And it's such a great, it's such a wonderful idea. And I think Jeremy Renner pulls it off well. And just, so I like that. I really enjoy James Spader as Ultron. I like everything they did with Vision. Um, I've liked Paul Bettany's work as Jarvis for a long time, mm-hmm. and I just like him. He does have a, as an actor, he does have a strange otherworldly quality, which allows him to play like angels and demons and otherworldly type of characters. And Vision mm-hmm. fits very well. I never saw that. Legion. You saw it, right? I did. Yeah. Because I wanted to see it for the five minutes. Uh, that our friend Doug Jones was in right. uh, before he was on the show ages ago. And uh, yeah, that movie, boy, oh boy, not <laughs> a good film. Um, um, okay, but I also, yeah. I also really like just a quick thing, uh, just how, how much they paid attention to the concept of collateral damage. And you and I talked about this off mic that, yeah, we know objectively, like the Avengers didn't save everybody, right? but they're trying to save everybody. And, they could just weigh and say like, well, these 10,000 people could die, but the world is saved. You know what I'm willing to do? I'm willing to deal with that. And that would have been a perfectly reasonable attitude, but it's not necessarily a heroic attitude. Mm -hmm. Heroism is, I think like in the face of impossible odds, just moving ahead anyway and doing your best to make it to, I don't know, to make a difference. And, and I think this is a film that like, really, there are times when I, when even I was just like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Like, yeah, it's unfortunate that that family in that building is going to die, but come on, right? you know, but those three businessmen in that elevator. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's just, uh, <laughs> but it was, I thought it was really effective and yeah. I don't know. It's, that's how it's neither of us like man of steel. And that was one of the big concern. One of the big problems people had with it was just a complete lack of consideration. And I recognize the world could blow up. So there's that as well, but it just seems like, yeah, but then, and then Man of Steel wanted us to care about like the one guy 
whose like leg is trapped under the rubble. It's like, oh, is he going to get out in time? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Well, kind of like three million people are dead already. Yeah. Yeah, and, by and that we, time, we know this guy's first name, so we're supposed to care a little more. But yeah, it's kind of a and then it also kind of communicates this idea that uh, these characters are important because they know Superman. And that's basically <laughs> it. Like he's the one getting him in the club of life. And yeah. so, um, but yeah, I really it's not a perfect movie. I think it's I think it is. A, there are some montages that were just and it rushes into Ultron pretty quick. Um, but once it's there, I really enjoy James Spader's work. I think it's pretty good. So, okay. Um, okay. Moving um, on. The next thing I saw, uh, I think we, and we also talked about this with, with Scott and I, cause he was there as well. Um, uh, who shall, who shall shens, uh, the puppet master. Okay. Um, uh, which is a, a marvelous film and it's, um, who shall shen is, uh, or, uh, as we learned to pronounce it at the screening, Ho Shaoshen um, is Taiwanese, and this this movie felt um, the the guy who introduced it uh, talked about all the uh, uh, all the movies. This is from ninety. I don't remember what year this is from. Uh, ninety one or ninety two or something like that. Um, and uh, the, the the guy who introduced the film talked about how. At the same time, in like the early '90s, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and mainland China were all like having these sort of um, resurgences of these like you know uh, mini like golden ages of all these great great films. And we've talked about you know we did a whole uh, Zhang Yimou episode, and mm-hmm. that's a mainland uh, guy. Um, and this felt the Puppet Master felt. Um, felt like one of those mainland China movies from the time, like, um, uh, Judo, which is a, that's mm-hmm. one of the Zhang Yimou ones that I can't remember if you watched that. I one. did not see it. Um, like that one or the, or the blue kite or so, or even like Pharaoh, my concubine that, mm-hmm. that take place over long periods of time. But it's a true story about this guy who, um, was a puppet master. He literally like put on puppet shows, which was, a uh, in the early, tw- earlier 20th century. This was a, um, very popular form of entertainment, folk mm-hmm. entertainment. Um, and then during the Japanese occupation, he essentially was put to work doing his shows that like doing puppet Japanese propaganda, hmm. um, and then got his career back afterwards and just sort of tell stories, the stories from his life. But what's really fascinating about the, the making and that, I mean, it's a fantastic film, but also the, an interesting thing they do is, in the middle of a sequence, you know, um, not, not in the middle of a scene, but between one scene and the next, instead of going to the next scene, it'll cut to an interview with the actual guy who's mm-hmm. now at this point in his like eighties or something, um, sitting on the set of whatever scenes, <laughs> like there's a scene in a brothel and then there's this guy sitting on the set of the brothel yeah. telling the story about what we just saw and what we're going to see and just sort of like moving things along. And he's this guy, there's a reason he's a, he, he was a lifelong entertainer because he's a born performer just the way even though i don't speak uh taiwanese like there's he's so clearly just like an entertaining guy to listen to and he has all kinds of hilarious stories we talked about it with scott like the story about how um his family thought that his uh, elderly his grandmother was cursed because every time she she was like always sick but every time she'd go stay with another family member one of the other members of the family would die i don't know why i'm laughing it's awful <laughs> but they just get this family just kept passing this woman around because it was like uh um 
she was sick and uh, so eventually uh he makes a deal with his dad his his father because the deal was that he was he was working like uh, up in the hills like in a, a logging or something community and the deal with his family was that he gave half of his earnings into the family and his dad basically said you can keep all your money from now on just take your grandma <laughs> and the guy's like and you know what happened nothing she was fine <laughs> um yeah so uh that's the puppet master i'm really glad that i it's uh I, it's the only one of the hu Xiao shen thing which is still going on i think until the end of june hmm. that i've been able to see i know scott's been to a ton of them um i'm really glad that's the one i've been able to see because it's kind of if there is one highlight or gem of the fest of the not the fest but the retrospective that's that's supposed to be it so i'm glad that i went to see it what's next for you now i forget are we doing this as a two to one thing do you have another one to talk oh, that's about that's right i'm supposed to do two yes yeah david saw more movies than i did in fact double um yeah a little more actually um i saw a movie that do you have hulu plus i do okay anyone who has hulu plus or who has the um I don't know if it's a Criterion. Uh, I, I don't know. It's part of the Criterion channel. So I don't know if it's something, because I know there are movies that Criterion has on Hulu that they haven't put out. Right. So I don't know if this is one that they've put out or not. Uh, it's a Portuguese film, film from 2006 called Colossal Youth. Okay. Um, that's about three hours long and is astounding. It's, it's in many ways, unlike any film that I've ever seen. Uh, and it's, it doesn't have, it's a super like low, lo-fi, low budget type of movie, um, with non-actors and non-professional actors. Uh, but it, it's one of those films that if you know, if you've seen a lot of movies like we have, and like Mm -hmm. most of our listeners have, when you watch Colossal Youth, I think you will have this reaction that is usually reserved for like old school special effects. We have this reaction, like, how did he do this? Like, and I don't mean like the physical, like how, like it's very, like I said, it's very clear. Like there's a camera there and he has sort of, uh, I, I swear he just uses one lens the entire time. That's kind of a wide lens, not super like fisheye lens, but it's just sort of a wide lens that he uses. And they're almost entirely static shots. Mm-hmm. Um, like each scene is basically just one shot. Um, and they're all non-professionals. Uh, or I guess maybe not all of them, but most of the core cast are non-professionals and it's so riveting just to see them talk and live. And the, hmm. the premise is that, um, this, this guy, um, who, uh, lives in Portugal, but was born in Africa and was, and, and came to Portugal as a young man, uh, for, uh, construction work. Cause mm-hmm. I, I guess that was, I guess, I think, I guess there are a lot of Africans, um, living in Portugal who came for that sort of, that sort of work was, it brought a lot of people uh, mm-hmm. there at one point. And now that work is over and he lives in essentially like a housing project. And at the opening of the film, the housing project has been closed and they're going to knock it down. Yeah. And at the same time, his wife leaves him, his current wife. We find out he's had a lot of, a lot of children with a lot of different people. That's kind of part of the premise is that he is essentially, most of it is just cause he doesn't like have a place to live anymore. So he's just sort of going around, and hanging out with his grown because he's an older he's in his late seventies. They're all grown now. He's yeah. hanging out with his grown children. Um, some of whom work, some of whom are drug addicts, some of whom, whom are squatting, like they're all over the, over the map there. Um, and at the same time, he's through, uh, the, the, the government is trying to fix him up with, because this is part of the deal. You live in the housing project, we're knocking it down. We're going to help you find more housing. 
And so the government is trying to find him a new apartment to live in. Mm-hmm. And he keeps, he's sort of misleading the representative, the housing agent or whatever saying, I need a big apartment because I need rooms for my family. Yeah. But not telling the guy like all my children are grown and have homes of their own. And my wife left me. It's just me. Hmm. But this sort of like looking for a big apartment is, I guess sort of a, an obvious but effective metaphor of this guy wanting in his old age to, um, to remain like the sort of patriarchal nucleus of his family. And it's just three hours of these conversations and it is fascinating. What was it called again? Colossal youth. Colossal youth. Yeah. All right. That sounds very interesting. That sounded that sounded fake. I'm sorry. That I'm act- it sounds actually interesting. Uh, I'm too tired to convince people, yeah. so my natural tone goes to sarcasm. Yeah, should we I'm make sincere. like excuses for ourselves? That sure. You're, you're tired and I'm sick. Yeah. Right now we're sick oh, and tired, David. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully we don't seem seem it too much, but. Um, okay, so that was the second one. Okay. Yep. So next for me is uh, I saw John McNaughton's The Harvest. Okay. This is the maker of uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer? Yeah, and uh, Mad Dog and Glory, which if people have not seen it, it's marvelous. Have you seen Mad Dog and Glory? No, I have not. Oh, I think you'd love it. Um, So, okay, this may sound strange. If it's possible, I don't know if it's possible for a film to be a first draft, but it feels (laughs) like that. It's a good premise, good performances. You've got Michael Shannon and Samantha Morton in there. Great. Peter Fonda shows up in there. Uh, there are younger actors. Both of them do a really solid job. It's just, it feels, I, in my review, the, the word I came up with was slight. It seems slight. Even though there's a life or death quality to it, people are going to, you know, are going to get hurt, and there, and there are moments of genuine suspense. But by and large, it felt so... So very low stakes. Like, there's not often movies that I watch in which I, while I'm watching it, I think, why am I watching this? <laughs> like, why is this a movie? Um, and then, you know, and you can kind of see the twist coming. And, and, and then when the twist comes, like, oh, okay, I, I get why I'm watching it now. Do I? Actually, <laughs> I feel like this has been done before. Probably better. Um, and it's just, and it's shot, like, when I think of John McNaughton, which admittedly I'm thinking of movies from 25 years ago. So maybe it's a bit unfair of me. Maybe he's changed as a filmmaker, but like I think of somebody who can evoke a, such a specific tone of dread and horror. I mean, it's interesting that Henry portrait of serial killer is considered a horror film. Yeah. Like officially it's like a true crime kind of movie, but it's horrific. So it feels like a horror movie. And this is a, I'd say it's maybe more suspense, but there's some horrific ideas in it. Um, and it doesn't feel like anything. It feel there, like I said, there are moments of suspense. He's still a capable director, but like visually it feels very much like a, and I apologize if I'm going to insult someone when I say this, it feels like a lifetime film. Uh-huh. Um, in just like just flat shots, camera, not doing anything. Yeah. Uh, everything fully lit, not a shadow in sight, but that doesn't even seem like a stylistic choice. I did for a moment think, Oh, maybe he's doing something kind of Lynchian and trying to show like, because the whole idea is like, Oh, it's this nice couple in there and their uh, disabled son, or I think he's just sick and their sick son. And you know, they're a good family. They're trying to make their way in the world and everything's going to be okay. 
Uh, and so, oh, but there's something underneath, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And so I thought, oh, maybe he's trying to show just how pleasant and seemingly bland their world is, but it turns out there's more to it. But I feel like if he was going to do that, he needs to stylize it just a little bit more. As it is right now, it seems like there are no visual choices made. Um, and that's a bummer because Samantha Morton does a great job. Michael Shannon, as one would assume, does a great job. Um, it's a it's a serviceable film, but by and large, it's just I wanted it to be so much better than it was. All right. Um, I saw a movie that coincidentally is coming out just this week. My review went up this week, but I saw it three weeks ago uh, called In the Name of My Daughter. It's um, directed by Andre Tichine, who is a filmmaker that I really like, who's sort of like loosely related to like the tail end of the French New Wave, but never okay. sort of has been elevated to the stature of the other New Wave guys. He started making movies in like the late 60s, I guess. Um, but he's continued to make movies, uh, including... Um, a 1994, 1994 film called Wild Reads that I contend hmm. is probably one of the best films of the 90s. People should check that out. Uh, but this new one is called In the Name of My Daughter, and it's based on a, a true story that I guess is fairly well known in France, especially in Nice, um, where um, in the 70s, I think it is, um, the uh, this casino owner had uh played by Catherine Deneuve mm-hmm. this casino has been in the family and her lawyer uh ends up striking up a love a love affair with her daughter okay and in some way ends up getting her daughter's share of the fortune and then her daughter mysteriously disappears and that's a true story that happened and yeah. it also involves the mafia uh, in other ways oh, wow. um but uh and and so it's based on a a true story but it doesn't it doesn't feel it doesn't have that feeling of like going from fact to fact to fact it's a very much uh a character-based type of movie you don't need you wouldn't need to know that it's based on a true story Mm -hmm. uh to enjoy it um and yeah people should check it out it's in theaters at least in los angeles this weekend and hopefully it'll be playing i assume country a few major places like new york and chicago probably yeah and it'll probably roll out you know i mean i don't know if yeah i don't know how that works in the digital cinema age yeah that's true um you know if they're because yeah when i lived in st louis we would get stuff we would get films like this you know weeks or months later than yeah other places because there were only so many prints and they'd have to finish their run somewhere before they could go somewhere else yeah uh, anyway, yeah, people should check out in the name of my daughter. The other one is a film that came out a couple weeks ago uh, that I reviewed called Felix and Mira, which is um, about a woman named Mira uh, who lives, who is a Hasidic Jew living in Montreal okay. and living in a very cloistered community where she doesn't really, uh, you know, she takes her her infant daughter for strolls around the neighborhood but doesn't talk to anyone, basically doesn't have any contact with anyone who is not part of her Hasidic community mm-hmm. in, in Montreal. Uh, and she happens to meet She's not happy. Um, you know, she's in an arranged marriage. Uh, and, um, you know, one of the smartest things the movie does is that it's called Felix mirror, but really there is the third guy who's her husband. And, I, and if it this were a, uh, a cheaper or, you know, or a, a less good movie, the husband would just be, you know, an asshole or misogynist or right. whatever, just to make it easy that right. she doesn't like him. But he's painted as 
a decent person who really cares about her, but doesn't have any of the, doesn't question any of the way, like he buys fully into the Hasidic thing and all the sets of beliefs and all the traditions. And he can't, they just are like two, they just don't fit together. Right. Um, and so instead of it being an easy choice that she like goes and has an affair with this non Hasidic guy, Felix. Yeah. Um, we see it as something that, takes a long time to happen and we never really it never really gets explicitly uh sexual at all uh, i think we see them kiss once and anything else is just implied because right. she's so reticent to come out of that because she's been raised a certain way her whole life and we also see the devastating effect it has on her husband right you know um and i don't want to spoil where it goes but there's a the scene where the her husband comes to see felix is uh uh, it's not, it's not a version of that scene you see in, uh, hmm. uh, uh other movies. It's really, really good. I, I really enjoyed the movie a lot. Um, it was a little bit tainted by, uh, seeing it at the, uh, the screening was at the WGA and it was like four WGA members, but then also the distributor, like contacted the PR person was like, Hey, you can invite some press, you know, this isn't going to fill up. You can invite some press. And the people who were working the door at the WGA were like, I guess that was just their little corner of the world that they were in charge of that, yeah. that evening. And because the PR person hadn't set the right list, I think this guy was loving that he, that we, that the two press people who showed up yeah. almost didn't get to go in, uh, until luckily, uh, the, um, I was just going to go cause I was like, fuck this guy. Yeah. But the other critic, um, a guy, I don't know, called the PR person was like, can you call, uh, here, talk to the guy and tell him that we're yeah. okay. So at the last minute, we get to go in. Um, but that's neither here nor there. As uh, you walked in, were you just like, thank you so much? And just <laughs> no, like, I didn't say a oh, goddamn man. word to him. I yeah. didn't want to give him the satisfaction. Yeah. But it did. It were WGA people. And at the end of the, uh, of the movie, the one woman behind me said, uh, well, it's not going to make any money. <laughs> 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 and it probably won't. But it's a good movie. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next for me is a movie that I saw many years ago. So this is a rewatch technically, but I, I remembered very little of it except for kind of the general idea. And that is the film Runaway Train uh, from 1985. Okay. Not Runaway Jury. No. Which no. I've seen. And not Money Train either. Which I have not seen. Okay. Um, or Throw Money from the Train. That's a different thing. I've seen Runaway Bride and yeah. Runaway Jury. Okay. Why'd you say jury like that? I don't know. Um, <laughs> just for, just for fun. Uh, I'm getting uh, all slap happy already. And I I, like but I've never seen runaway train. Uh, I, I cannot know the soul am- asylum song. <sighs> never coming back. Um, George went in the music video. That's right. <laughs> that's right. What? That's weird. Yeah. He's also in, uh, but this is like a comic, a comic vignette. From uh, Michael Jackson's uh, Black or White. That's in which right. He's uh, Macaulay, Macaulay Culkin's, Culkin's. Uh, uh, father who just, you know what? He just doesn't get it. Yeah. He just doesn't get it. it. Should be Will Smith's father the way he Absolutely. Um, um, what were you saying? Oh, Runaway Train, the yeah. movie. Um, yeah, so uh, it is about um, two convicts played by John Voight and Eric Roberts, both nominated for Academy Awards for actor and supporting actor, respectively. And uh, they escape from a prison in Alaska, and they uh, make it to a train yard and hop aboard a train uh, whose conductor uh, dies. There's a lot of coincidences and conveniences, plot conveniences in the uh, 
in the film. Uh, so the conductor dies as the, uh, as the train is moving forward. And so these two convicts are on it and, uh, people are trying to figure out how to stop the train, but then people are also trying to figure out where the convicts are. And then eventually they put it together that, Oh, okay. These two things are connected. Even though the convicts had, had nothing to do with the train being a runaway. But, um, but yeah, so listeners know uh, that for a long time, my least favorite actor was John Voight. And I think I've probably lightened up on that. I think I've come to embrace the, maybe not embrace, Sorry, be okay with uh, the kind of actor he is. And I recognize that in the right role, he's great. He was great in Ali. Um, and just when he plays characters that are maybe a bit, by their very nature, a bit over the top, um, I think he does very well. And in this, he is solid, very solid. Um, because this is a character... You know, and they they do some makeup, and they have him grow a very specific kind of facial hair. So he does seem like a guy who he seems like a guy who's been in prison a while. Like he, there's an animalistic quality to him. He seems to uh, function primarily on instinct, and and John Voight, who he finds a way to tap into that. And there's a there's a really there's a really good scene that I would say it's touching, except he doesn't play it as touching, in which he's talking to the other convict. Uh, who's kind of a dim-witted guy played by uh, Eric Roberts. And um, and he's explaining to him, like, what basically, like, what life is. Like, if you could go out and basically just get a job and be okay with that, like, just a, just a crappy job that any convict could get, you know, just cleaning floors or something like that with a toothbrush and you spend all day doing that. And then some boss comes out and says, Hey, you missed a spot over there and you want to kill him, but you don't. Instead you go and you work on that little spot. It's like, if you can do that, then you'll be, you'll be fine. In fact, and I believe he says like, Oh, I don't remember exactly what he says, but something like, it's like, you could be the president of, you know, some major company. I don't remember. And it's just really neat. I, and, he, and he says, like, I wish I could do that. And it's this idea of, like, the, it kind of talks about the American dream to a certain extent. This idea, like, if you work hard and you can deal with people shitting on you, <laughs> then you actually can probably go pretty far. But some people just seem either they actually are unable to do that or they think they're unable to do it. Um, and I don't know. There's And yeah. that scene and that monologue could have been done really heartfelt, but he's yelling it. He's furious at himself, at society. And so he undercuts the inherent, uh, in a good way, he undercuts the, uh, the sadness of that scene because it, that's not who the character is. And it, he makes some good choices and it's actually a pretty good movie. All so, right. uh, it's on Netflix. Uh, if you're interested, go watch uh, runaway train. All right. I don't want to get to, I guess I don't want to get political. But oh, um, that's all well and good. But I do. It does bother me that um, being a felon makes you so. You know, you're literally disenfranchised. You can't vote, sure. and you're not eligible for a lot of government services. And there's a lot of jobs you're immediately barred from because you've been a felon. And I don't think that's good for our country because it essentially means we have all these people that that we've kept from being able to contribute yeah. anymore. And now, yeah, that, uh, that does bother me. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that he's specifically saying, I don't think he's meant to be motivating people. <laughs> okay. I think he's, it's quite the opposite. I think he's, uh, lamenting his own 
situation and and he could be talking in this case he's talking to a felon but he could be talking to the audience itself right. and right. saying like not everyone is able to do this and okay. i don't know it's it's a good You're movie right. it's just one of my pet i think uh, you'd like it pet causes um uh i think felons should be able to vote that's <laughs> that's something i believe very strongly um all right so colossal youth was only the first of two three-hour Portuguese films that I watched in the past month. The other one is a documentary with the delightful name, What Now? Remind Me. Nice. I um, like that. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a fun name, uh, and it's an interesting documentary. It's not, uh, I wouldn't call it a fun documentary. Basically, it's about a guy who works in, he, he's, it's not a, it's a documentary. So it's a, yeah, it's not a fictional account. It's this guy who is a it's the director making the film about himself he's directed films before but he's also worked for decades and decades as a sound man in the portuguese film industry and he is also gay and he also has hiv and he signs up for this um clinical trial Mm -hmm. uh that lasts um now it's been um yeah, it's been a while uh, since I've seen it, so I can't remember if it's six months or a year. But for for the de- duration of this trial, he decides to document things using uh, his camera, partially because the drugs that he's on in this clinical trial um, are affecting his memory, and he's yeah. kind of like disconnected from his life a little bit. So it's more, in some ways, it's just for him to remember. But he ends up making this three-hour-long impressionistic documentary about his life and what it means to be portuguese and the history of the film industry and the history of gays in europe and it's just like this huge this huge thing that just like started with him and is mostly conducted by him pointing little like little handheld cameras at himself or at other things or even just like setting them up in his house while he does things there's um all kinds of you know shots of just like uh, oh, there's a spider that lives on my windowsill. I'll shoot that for a little bit. Or here's me reading or here's me and my husband having sex. You know, it's like it, it can be, it, it, it covers all things. And also they, he and his husband own uh, a tract of land and have uh, like three or four adorable dogs. And so there's a lot of adorable dog behavior uh, in the movie. I'd say uh, as far as movies where you don't expect adorable dogs to be a part of it, I think what now remind me beats goodbye to language as far as the uh, unexpected adorable dog quotient, partially because there's three or four of them instead of just the one. But uh, yeah, this movie is fantastic. And I, um, I watched it late at night, um, partially with headphones in because my uh, wife had gone to sleep or whatever. Mm -hmm. And just like this guy it's just, it's a, it's hypnotic, this movie. Hmm. Um, it, It could I imagine if you're like same with colossal youth, if you were a casual movie fan, you would probably be bored by both of them, but yeah. you're listening to this podcast. So you're probably not a casual movie fan. Damn right. Um, these are movies to, to seek out. They're really fascinating stuff. Um, and then I'll do one more. I saw a crappy movie too. Okay. But I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. Oh, all right. Have you been to the old town music hall in El Segundo? I have not. Okay. Here's it's this, place that's been um i think it shut down for a few years in the 60s but essentially has been showing movies since the 1920s it's a tiny little um thing um tiny little room but it's been you know restored and it looks like it you know would have looked in the 20s and also the people who own it are also into like old instruments so there's a movie but beforehand they they come out the guy talks a little bit he has another guy who plays a uh 
which is different from a calliope. Right. Um, and then he plays this, they have this old like Nickelodeon piano. He used to just this little, they, you know, these Nickelodeon movie theaters didn't have the organs to accompany silent films. They just had the little Nickelodeon pianos, which is the sound yeah. of which you can totally like would just seems like every parody of a silent film you've ever seen, you okay. know, that kind of tinny piano playing. Uh, and this guy had like, he's like, here's an original piece I wrote for a Nickelodeon piano and sits down and plays it. And then they, um, uh, open up. So, th- and, but they do have a full organ that they moved from an old Fox theater and installed. And, you know, an organ, the part you see is the seat with all the keys in front of it. Mm-hmm. And an organ is a huge thing that's built into the structure of the place yeah. with pipes. And, and this is a full organ that it can play all sorts of instruments. It has chimes and it has drums and it has everything, uh, you know, in it. And so they open up the curtain where they have the organ installed behind the curtain. And the organ is covered in, like, different colored reflective tape and paint. So they turn off all the lights and shine the light on it so you can see all the parts of the organ. And the guy plays like a 20 minute suite from the movie we're going to see that night. Okay. And you can see it's so fascinating. You can see all the parts of the organ That's uh, fun. moving and then they show a newsreel and they do a sing along with, uh, he plays some songs that were big in 1914. Okay. Uh, that was the year. I don't know. That wasn't the year of the film. I'm not sure why it was 1914. Cause that was 101 years ago. I don't know. Yeah. Um, maybe they're still using the same one from last year. Uh, but like the lyrics come up and he plays and everyone like, sings along with these uh these these old songs it's they're old simple songs that even if you don't know once you get like through two lines you're like all right i see the words i got the melody i can sing along with this song uh and then they show a newsreel and a silent short um and then there's intermission and they show the actual movie so at this point it's 10 bucks to get in yeah i've more than gotten my 10 bucks worth yeah so the fact that the movie was a snooze what it's was okay. It? What was the movie? It's a 1953 musical um, based on uh, Roger and Hammerstein. Roger and Hammerstein musical. I did. That was my first mistake. I don't really like the, like Roger and Hammerstein. But, uh, what, um, what have they done? I don't. Well, I never remember. I know you and I. Neither one of us likes Carousel. Uh, I'm not an Oklahoma fan. I'm not. I, I don't a, like Oklahoma. Um, I'm not a South Pacific fan. I've never seen it. Okay. Well, you gotta. <laughs> you know, wash the wash it right out of your hair. Yeah. Um, is that from South Pacific? Yeah. You got to uh, wash that man right out of my hair. Ugh. And then, um, that also South Pacific also has the most, like the song about, it's about racism and it's like, Oh man, I'm, I really believe in the concept of the song, but it's so fucking full of itself and mm. like pompous. It's like, it's, I think it's so called you've got to be carefully taught, which is about how racism is passed down from generation to generation. Even the title bothers me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Anyway, uh, so this is a movie called The Desert Song um, that uh, basically involves a, it's sort of a Lawrence of Arabia type of thing, uh, an unnamed uh, Arab Middle Eastern country that is occupied by, Mm -hmm. uh, it's occupied by the French and all the characters are supposed to be French, but they don't speak in French. They're just American actors. Yeah, I'm sure. That's something that was more common, I guess, in the fifties. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and there's this one guy who's a professor who lives in the city who is also secretly leading like Lawrence leading a revolution, reading a rebellion of different tribes against the, uh, the Sheik who's, okay. uh, yeah, uh, you know, a uh, power monger or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's basically the story. And then the sheik like ca- kidnaps the, the daughter of the French general, yeah. uh, you know, um, and it's just, it's just a snooze. It's not good. The, okay. the songs also like, there's something about these old songs, like 
you know, I mean, we're we're more, I guess, Moulin Rouge, Chicago on. We're more. Uh, we went through a period where we didn't really like musicals, right? As a country, and uh, now they're back yeah, to liking them, so. but there's still certain things about old musicals, like old singing styles. Like mm-hmm. Catherine Grayson is the the female lead, and her style. She's singing these Broadway these show tunes, yeah. but she's singing them like she's a like su- like opera soprano. Like hmm. she's everything's all like way up way up high and you can almost like especially with you know it's an old old movie the sound wasn't in the best condition you can you can't understand every word because it's just too high pitched and not modulated at all like she's just like finding her pitch and like this is the pitch of the song it doesn't matter like the my my character's emotions about this are important it's the thing that always got me about musicals when they're bad which is like like, all right, we're at, we're performing, we're acting, we've got character arcs. Time to stop all that because we've got a song to sing. Right? Um, yeah, that's a when they're done poorly. That's a thing that always gets me about musicals. Yeah. Um, okay. But it sounds like a fun experience. Yeah, it's totally worth going. Um, and they yeah they show stuff all the time. Last week and I almost went again because they were showing the um, the Little Princess, the Shirley Temple film. It would have been fun, but uh, couldn't make it out. It's Elsa Gundo's a not any, it's a long way away, yeah. you know? Uh, but I did discover now, uh, you know that I like tiki bars. Yes. I'm a big fan of the tiki thing. Mm-hmm. And there's a tiki bar right just over and down, like across the street and down a block from the old town music hall called the purple orchid, purple orchid. That, uh, is like one of my new favorite tiki bars in the Southland now. Well, I'll tell you what, the next time you and I are at Disneyland, I will take you to a little place I like to call the Enchanted Tiki Room. I've been there. I hope you like I love, birds. No, I love the Enchanted Tiki do Room. Do you actually? I do, yeah. But you know what it doesn't have that tiki bars have is cocktails. That's true. You can't drink. It does have uh, some pretty racist stereotypes, though, as far as those <laughs> birds. You're probably right. Like but I, I, yeah, I remember like the first time I went to Disneyland with my now wife. I insisted on going to the Enchanted Tiki Room and I was, in retrospect, like I might've been putting the relationship at risk. It's something that that everybody needs to experience (laughs) at least once. And it was just, uh, and yeah, it's stuff like, you know, like Disney is so careful about like whitewashing, no pun intended, the, uh, like racism from, uh, their past Tiki Room has not changed since the 1950s or 60s i'm sure so you have like a like a uh, like a mexican bird who says like like hey everybody it's show time like he said like this like a ch like hits it so hard it's ridiculous anyway okay uh so next up for me is the alex garland film ex machina okay we've talked about this on here because yeah. i saw it i loved it it is currently my favorite movie of the year um Besting and Cinderella. Besting Cinderella. Cinderella is like number five, I think. Oh, Cinderella is still my number one. Uh, yeah, boy, this movie, I was not expecting to like it as much as I did and respond to it as much as I did. Um, it's like, I, I, I like how little action there is, which is to say virtually none. Um, it's, it's suspenseful, but almost purely emotionally and intellectually. Uh, you always feel like there's something more going on. And eventually I realized that for myself, I was having the same response to this film that I have to film noir. And when you, and so, and I was like, yeah, I guess that is how I feel. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, 
Well, the character types and the character relationships are very similar to film noir. Um, and I thought, like, that's kind of great. I wonder if Alex Garland specifically used that as an inspiration. You've got eccentric millionaire. You've got naive but well-meaning hero. And then you've but got... The, the everyman who gets in over his head. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got this woman who is more than she seems. Now, of course, that there's... There's a sci-fi twist to that, but mm-hmm. and it turns out she is able to be very manipulative and, and that sort of thing. And I don't know. There's a lot, and I think it's a wonderful visual style. I love the pacing of it. I think the performances are great all around. I re- I remember you specifically said that like you really responded to like what Oscar Isaac was doing because, and if we were to let's let's stick with like the film noir thing, you know. Well, the modern millionaire is not Noah Cross anymore. It's uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh-huh. you know, and uh, and so he play so he's he just plays it as just kind of menacing a little bit, yeah. and but also really casual, um, which somehow makes him more menacing. Yeah, um, it's a I, I really responded to the movie. I loved it. I, I really, um, and I know I told you about this off mic a while ago, but I was reading a thing in GQ about Ex Machina and about Star Wars: The Force Awakens, mm-hmm. in which Oscar Isaac is playing like a hero. Yeah. And the the GQ editorial or, or, or piece or whatever was, um, I guess, preemptively lamenting the idea that if Oscar Isaac becomes a huge movie star and becomes thought of as a leading man and hero, we won't get to see him play assholes anymore <laughs> the way he is so good at. Yeah. You know, like uh, with this and with, you know, Lewin Davis is an asshole. He's a little more, little more likable than yeah. Nathan or whatever his name is yeah. in Ex Machina. But, you know, he's good at playing likable assholes yeah uh but not too likable um and uh yeah i i hope the gq thing was wrong i hope he still uh you know balances his choices but i you know if he wants to become i don't know uh trying to think of who a big leading man is if he wants to become will smith he can do that yeah well and you know what and i and i i have enough faith in him as an actor that even if he plays a bland leading part, he can still bring more to it than is, than is probably written. Okay. Hopefully. Um, I saw at the Los Angeles Pan Pacific film festival. Okay. That's the, uh, what is it? The, wait, no Los Angeles Asian Pacific film festival because it's L A A P F F. Lap. Yeah, but lap. <laughs> um, I saw a film called, uh, uh, I guess it's a science fiction film called 2030 because that's when it takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, that is beautiful and brilliant. Um, it, it So it takes place in uh, southern Vietnam at a time 15 years in the future when rising sea levels have put most of Southern Vietnam underwater Mm -hmm. and a lot of the people have been evacuated, but there are still people living there. Basically they just, as the water rises, they just keep building their houses higher and higher on stilts. And instead of these were, you know, farmers and rural people who are now fishing instead of farming, but they're essentially living the same lives that they were. Um, they still put up like fences and try to keep other people from fishing on their property, which is just their like, uh, what is this? All right. There's something set up here. And when I updated this computer that is now like, I think it's connected to your wife's phone or something. Oh, really? I, I keep getting these things <laughs> pop up. All right. We'll mute it. Um, nothing else. Yeah. Um, 
Anyway, sorry about that, listeners. I don't know what to do about that computer. Um, what was I saying? Okay, so uh, yeah, it's still they're still living this way of life, but there are fewer people, and it's so it's like I guess it's like Water World, but it's not fantastical. There's almost you know everything is. I love that. That's what I liked about uh, Never Let Me Go, okay. um, like a science fiction premise, but the realization that yeah, not everybody that lives in this world is going to be like yeah in an ex machina situation, yeah. you know. And I love it'll it still affects these people. Yeah. Um, but then we do get, um, a little bit more, I mean, I still, there's no special effects or anything, but you get a little bit more of the science fiction stuff when, uh, the, the main couple, the husband dies, um, mm-hmm. uh, he's, he's, he's murdered, but we don't know at least at first by whom. And he was the breadwinner. So she gets a job working on one of these floating farms, which is essentially a, these, barges with greenhouses on them that float mm-hmm. around the ocean. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's an interesting, uh, idea. Um, and, uh, I don't want to go too much into it. It's cause it's, you know, it's science fiction. It's a thriller. It's a mystery. It's also a romance because it at one point flashes back to the year 2020 when the sea levels have already risen, but aren't as bad. And you sort of see, um, uh, you know, the, the difference and you see that, Oh, in 2020, 10 years before this takes place, she was dating someone other than the guy she's married to in 2030. And you right. sort of get to see how that plays out and how it may or may not tie into the murder and the later story and stuff yeah. like that. It's uh, fantastic. It's called 2030. I don't know when anyone will be able to see it. It's a yeah. Vietnamese movie that I happen to get to see, um, at the film festival. Uh, and then, Oh man. Um, I saw another movie. Yeah, we should probably start hurrying it up a little bit if we can. Um, I saw a movie called Aloft that, yeah, I guess the least said, less said the better. It's also a movie that jumps back and forth in time. And it stars Jennifer Connelly, Killian Murphy, and Melanie Laurent. Great, great right. cast. Yeah. And also, um, who's the guy? Uh, why am I drawing a blank? He was in Inherent Vice. He's the guy that uh, Joaquin Phoenix says, did I hit you? When he shoots him. Oh, that guy. Yeah. Uh, Peter McRoby. That sounds, that sounds I think that's right. The uh, he Peter also McRobie. is in uh, daredevil. Oh, okay. As uh, his uh, priest and confidant. Okay. Um, he has a small role in this, uh, as well. Um, and it's just this heavy self serious kind of like m- mystical or fantastical movie, but doesn't really like commit to that element. Uh, it's basically, Jennifer Connelly and has two two young kids at the beginning, and she takes one of them to this healer guy that mm-hmm. all these people bring their sick kids to, and he'll only help one kid a day. Okay, and the way he he wraps up stones or pebbles in leaves, and one of the stones is white, and he hands them out to all the families, and whoever gets the white pebble. That's this is the kind of bullshit that happens in this movie. No. It is kind of the kind of claptrap that happens in this movie. Uh, and also, oh, the older kid who's not sick is also into Falcons, which is uh, uh, ends up anyway. So then we jump, but then during this thing, the kid, the kid who's supposed to get healed, is not her kid. Another kid gets healed, and this healer says, "I didn't do this; you did," and so convinces Jennifer Connelly that she's a healer. And then we sort of jump twenty years into the future when. Uh, Jennifer Connelly has um, cut contact with Killian Murphy, who is the grown falconer mm-hmm. son. Um, and then Melanie Laurent plays uh, 
documentarian who's trying to locate this healer woman. So this guy who hasn't Killian Murphy hasn't seen his wife, his wife, his mom in 20 years, um, did agrees to go along on this journey to try and find her with this documentary filmmaker. It's boring. You don't, yeah. <laughs> you don't need to see it. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's boring. And then sometimes it's like, this is weird, but not in a, not in a good way. Just like who thought this was okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, yeah. all right. What's up for you next? Next up is a movie that is a rewatch and you'll be happy to know, although maybe not thrilled with my reaction. I rewatched. They came together. Oh, um, I liked it less this time. That's too bad. Um, it's a movie that's of course very easy to watch. I, I threw it on old Netflix there because it is such a, such a pleasant film. And what I, what I'll say is that like, I still laughed, you know, and while I didn't necessarily respond as positively as I did before, I will say this as a filmmaker and specifically as a comedic filmmaker, I really, I really respect, I think I respect David Wayne more than I respond to him because he is all in. If there is a joke that he has decided will be in his (laughs) film, he is 100% committed to it. Like in, in wet hot American summer, there is a scene where a character goes up and like for the talent show and like creates wind, like Uh manipulates the weather or something like that. Yeah. That's not just a joke. That's a, that's a plot point. (laughs) <laughs> because that wind that ends up like anyway that is true yes I've seen the movie a few but it times. seems like it's such an odd it's odd as a joke and odd as a plot point um but uh but he commits to it and that's the thing that happens uh in they came together like his thing with the bartender oh yeah i respond to it and and it's just like wow they're just gonna keep going with this and i don't say that in an, in an incredulous way but it's like more power to you david wayne go get him how does that end uh, I can't remember now. I don't, I don't actually remember yeah. either. I think they just decide to break out of the cycle <laughs> after a certain point. Um, and, uh, Oh, you know what? I think one, I think Bill Hader interrupts him and says like, yeah, okay, we got it. Um, Oh, right, right. And so, yeah, it's, it's a film that I, uh, it's a comedy I enjoy. Um, but I didn't like it as much as I did the first time. And I don't think anybody likes it as much as you do. Okay. <laughs> so did anyone besides me put it on their top 10? Not to my any knowledge. other film critic in the world put it on their top 10 list. Well, or? I can't speak to that okay. when you put it like that. Galactically. Okay. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I saw a movie. It's called Dreamcatcher, but it's not the one you're thinking of. Aww. It's a recent documentary about a woman who, uh, was for more than 20 years, a prostitute on the South side of Chicago got out of that life. Now she works, um, counseling uh at risk um girls in inner city schools mm-hmm. and also counseling women who are in prison for prostitution yeah um uh and then she has her own foundation called the Dreamcatcher foundation in which she just sort of drives around in a van that's a dream catcher late at night and offers assistance to women you know she offers anything from just saying do you need condoms to do you want to come in and have a cup of coffee and talk about oh that sounds uh, nice and it's this woman like there's just uh, i'll talk about this actually uh, another um similar a very similar woman actually um when i talk about tales of the grim sleeper later but to have i mean she went through what she went through and is also just so uh, so full of life and so she's such a 
She's such a card. I know that seems like it's like an old timey <laughs> saying. That El Segundo and, theater uh, rubbed yeah. off on you. And this is a very serious topic, you know, about uh, a, a movie about people uh, in dire straits in their mm-hmm. lives. But she's so much, so interesting to watch, and so uh, straightforward. You think like that only a person who lived through it could help these women the way they need to be helped. You yeah. know what I mean? Because I think if I were to offer assistance, uh, offer my help, offer uh, a, a, an ear to someone who had been, who was essentially, you know, uh, been a prostitute since she was 14 and was, you know, under the sway of a pimp or multiple pimps or whatever, right. I might risk inadvertently being a little patronizing. Sure. You know what I mean? Because I don't relate. Whereas this woman is talking about just talking cat because she went through the same shit. So she's talking about stuff that would like shock and appall you and me, like the things, the awful things that John's have done to her or that her pimps have done to her. And she's just talking so casually and even like laughing about their shared experiences. Yeah. Uh, in a way that is not callous, but right. Exactly the opposite that like creates, she creates a bond with people that it's, this woman's amazing. She's like my hero. Hmm. One of my heroes now. Um, so that's dream catcher. Uh, and then I watched an Anthony Mann document, an Anthony Mann Western called okay. man of the West. Okay. Um, and, uh, stars Gary Cooper and Lee J Cobb, uh, and, uh, Julie London. And it is amazing. Have you seen it? No, it's, uh, it's, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's 1958. So it's still in like the classic Western sort of, I mean, that classic like stage stagecoach, but it's, yeah. I mean like it, like, uh, what's it called? Um, the searchers, which I guess isn't that classical, but that was only a couple years before that. But even though, like, uh, I think, and maybe this is just me being ignorant because of my age, but I, I tend to think of like revisionist Westerns as starting later than that. I think like 65. Uh, yeah, but this is, uh, I don't know that it's fully revisionist, but it is, Man of the West is like bleak and harsh in a way that I don't normally associate with Westerns from the 1950s. Yeah. Um, and so upfront about the main character, Gary Cooper plays a man who was an outlaw, ran with his uncle uh, for years, his uncle played by Lee J. Cobb, and then left and settled in a small town and has gotten his life back together and is now, he's on the way, he's it's not even a small town. It's a settlement that he's helped build up and he's on his way into, he's traveling to whatever the nearest city is to try and hire a school teacher for the settlement. And, um, then the train he's on gets robbed. He gets put off the train and ends up inadvertently meeting back up with his old gang. Hmm. Uh, and the movie doesn't gloss over the fact that he was like a straight up murderer for years. Like, like it's not trying to make you, too sympathetic to him while yeah. saying like, yeah, he's gotten his life together, but he has murdered people and not really, you know, paid for it or whatever. No. Uh, and, um, it also has, he and one of the younger members of the gang that he didn't, you know, has come along since he left. They don't get along. Yeah. And it has a fight between them. When it finally breaks out into a fight between them, it's, it goes on forever. And it's like, this is more of an old time movie thing, but it's great because it's the way that when you see two guys fight, it's the way they actually fight. Yeah. Cause in, in movies when two guys fight, it's always like, you know, Jack Reacher and 
Jai Courtney or whatever, yeah. you know, uh, doing these choreographed moves. Really, when two guys fight, it's mostly like they're grabbing onto each other and they're wrestling each other to the ground. Yeah. And there's like less, there's more like pulling and tugging than yeah. there is actual punching. And this, so this fight between Gary Cooper and this younger outlaw goes on for like five minutes uh, and actually uh, feels very real. <laughs> and at one point, uh, Gary Cooper gets pushed into a horse, which is funny to me because it's like a live horse and <laughs> yeah. like shows him into the horse. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic and heavy movie. And also I like to, uh, I say I don't watch trailers, but I love to watch trailers movies right after I've seen them just yeah. as an experiment to see like, how is this marketed? And uh, this thing we complain about uh, trailers giving away the whole movie. Yeah. That's not a new thing. Oh, not at all. <laughs> they used to do it so much more yeah. uh, when, when uh, not when we were young, but like in the fifties and sixties. Yeah. I mean, there's like when he, at the end, when he gets the, like the, the bad guy, finally, it's a really cool, there's a whole tense, standoff in this ghost town that leads up to it and then he ends up sort of they're both shot and he sort of tricks him into like revealing himself and it's like this awesome scene and the whole scene, the whole scene is in the trailer yeah it's ridiculous uh anyway i guess i just gave it away but not really i didn't give away the mechanics yeah, yeah. of it which is what's really cool all right what's next for you next for me is a documentary called dark star uh it is about oh, hr what to like this week or last week yeah uh for me yeah um but uh yeah so it's about hr giger and it is a good film i responded to it but i think i responded to it mostly because um i think it's a film that that really tries to champion his work rather than try to explain it and explain him um you know if asked he and his friends will say like oh he's just you know uh, he's fascinated with death and life and sexuality and the interplay of all three. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Um, but I just don't under, but it, I don't think, I think HR gear is a really good argument for the idea that we don't know where art comes from. Like mm-hmm. this could be like you and I could be fascinated by death, life and sexuality and the interplay of all three. And we would not paint that. you know what i mean yeah uh that's that is completely him it is unique and it's astounding and so it's a it's a film that i think is just excited at the kind of artist he is and i think wisely maybe they tried to explain it and realize that this isn't going to happen uh but yeah it kind of maintains the mystery of the guy um and it just lingers lovingly on his paintings and sculptures and that sort of thing. And it's a little bit biographical. Um, but what I like is that it doesn't, I don't know. It's to go back. I guess I'm just kind of restating my, my thing that it doesn't try to explain it, but like, you know, it talks about how he was, he had a girlfriend who wound up, uh, who eventually uh, killed herself. She dealt with depression and she killed herself. And, you know, he talked, he talks about it and other people talk about it. And it would be easy for the film to make a draw a line from one point to another and say, ah, yes, this really helped shape him. But he was doing this stuff before she came along. And so it's just, a, he was going to be like this no matter what. And this is just a tragic thing that happened to him. Like life is more complicated than I think movies and even documentaries make them out to be. I think, uh, 
movies will often simplify the narrative of life. And I think this one understands that it's more complex. And certainly a guy like him is more complex than any film can try to sum up. And so, uh, it's a, it's a good documentary. Don't go in thinking you're going to understand him at the end. Um, and yeah, um, it's, it's a good film. What you're saying there about film is how I've always interpreted the, the shadow of the vampire, which is Mm -hmm. the idea that life is way too big and mean and messy to ever be captured by one artist and, you know, the best you can hope for is the shadow of the vampire. Oh, let's move on. Um, I didn't care for that tone of voice at all. <laughs> Which one? Just it's. I couldn't tell if you were mocking yourself. I think I was mocking okay, myself. All right, yeah. got it, got it. Um, all right, I saw uh, a movie that I think people like us who are our age and have our tastes might be quick to dismiss. Mm-hmm. You'd be wrong to do so. Okay, it's called "I'll See You in My Dreams," and it's uh, a sort of. It's a, uh, I, I guess romantic comedy is not the right word because it's, it's a romantic dramedy with Blythe Danner and Sam Elliott. So it seems like, oh, this is made for the, the matinee set, right? Sure. Uh, but, um, it's a nice way of putting it. It's a, it's a delightful movie. I mean, it's not going to like blow down any doors of perception in your mind or whatever, no. but it's really well made and very thoughtful and very funny and has a great cast. I mean, I mentioned I'm a huge Blythe Danner fan. I don't know if you are. I found out while I'm trying, trying to, I don't know what I've seen her in. I know I've seen her in something, but um, I don't remember what. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Um, hopefully not. Paul did not see her in Paul. Uh, I know you didn't watch Huff on Showtime. No, I did watch Huff. Oh yeah. I watched the first season. Oh, you oh, watched a good one. Okay. Yeah. 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 There you go. Um, I'm a big Blythe Danner fan. I found out my wife is not, which is, um, surprising to me. Hmm. Uh, but, um, so not only is it Blythe Danner and Sam Elliott, which right there is a great yeah. cast. Uh, her pool guy, who she strikes up a, a, a friendship with, is played by Martin Starr. All right. Uh, for once playing not the cynic. Blythe yeah. Danner is the cynic, yeah. and he's like the sort of nice guy. Um, her daughter uh, is played by Mal- Malin Ackerman. Okay. Um, the actor Reed Scott from My Boys and Veep plays a cop. And here's, here, here's where it gets knocked out of the park for me. Some okay. of my favorite character actresses play her bridge club buddies oh that's so you already got by dinner yeah run it out with Rhea perlman hey all right june squibb okay and mary Kay place oh nice yeah three people three oh, people that i love like a lot so of fun. yeah it, even when it gets like this sort of corny like the, these four old broads all decide to smoke weed together yeah. scene are they dumb. brassy would you say they're brassy old broads well Rhea perlman is definitely yeah. brassy yeah. but she doesn't know anyway she's got she's got one setting <laughs> yeah she got two settings, brassy and off. Um, uh, so yeah, you hit that off switch. Rhea Perlman is dead. Um, um, so that was great. Uh, okay. I like that one. And then I saw a movie. It's not called the overnighters, which you saw, right? Not you yet. still haven't watched that. Okay. Not yet. No, this is a movie called the overnight. Oh yes. It's Adam Scott and Taylor Schilling and Jason Schwartzman and a French actress that I don't know. Hmm. Um, Adam Scott and Taylor Schilling play a couple with a young child who is recently relocated to uh, Silver Lake, some hip part of yeah. hip, but like now rich part of yeah. like, you know how 10 years ago when I moved here, Silver Lake was still like for like poor hipsters. Yeah. But now it's like, yeah, they got good jobs, but they didn't leave. Yeah. Now it's all like Bikram yoga studios yeah. and uh, you gotta yeah make at least a hundred grand to even uh, afford to live in the neighborhood. So um, anyway, that's, um, they moved to that part of the town and they, uh, they meet at the park. They take the kid to the park and they meet Jason Schwartzman and his wife. They have a kid. They get invited over Jason Schwartzman and his wife invite them over for, for dinner. 
uh, which, uh, you know, turns out they're super rich, have this huge house and there's something maybe a little creepy. Maybe, maybe they're getting a little too friendly. Maybe they want more than just dinner friends. I see. Uh, you know, uh, um, uh, 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 talking swingers. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. As in to swing. Yeah. Um, uh, raising Arizona. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and so it's a movie, it's one of those movies where other than the meeting at the park at the beginning and then a, uh, epilogue at the end, the entire movie takes place over the one night. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit silly at times. It involves not one, but two, uh, prosthetic penises that, um, are actually like, not only plot points, but like carrot, like it's important to the characters that we see their penises. So that's why they have prosthetic penises. Um, but, uh, sometimes it, it, yeah, it, it loses control of its tone a little bit, but overall I think it's, um, uh, definitely recommend it. All right. Um, is it my turn? Yep. Okay. I saw an Argentinian film Oh, called the film critic. Um, it has only recently been released in the U.S., uh, but it's actually a 2013 film in Argentina. It's simply called The Critic there. Um, but they didn't want to... They didn't want any... Uh, be confused with, the Jay, with Jay Sherman. And, right. Yeah. Um, and it's... Boy, I was torn on the film because it is tonally all over the place, which doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, but it just, more than anything, it just felt like it's the guy's first film and it feels like it. It felt like it almost felt like he didn't think he would ever get a chance to direct another one. So he's going to do everything he can (laughs) right now. Um, and there's some, some little moments that are kind of clever, but maybe a little bothersome to me, maybe a little cloying, I guess you could say in that the, uh, the main character is a film critic. Uh, but when, and he kind of, not just a clever name, not just a clever name, not this time. Um, but uh, he, and so he kind of narrates the film, but it's mostly his inner thoughts and they're in French. He is not French, oh. but his thoughts are in French. Like just because he's a film critic and we all love French films, right? With narration. And so it's stuff like that, you know? Um, and he's a little bit cynical. How many films have you seen? Like, I feel like every parody of a French film is just last year at Marion bad. There aren't like a whole bevy of films like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's yeah. just uh, every parody you see of people like looking slightly off camera and talking yeah. stern, like seriously to yeah. themselves. One and, person's in profile. The other's <laughs> looking straight ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just last year at Marion bad. That's the only movie <laughs> yeah. they're parodying. Um, and so it's, but yeah. And so, uh, basically he, he is bothered by, um, by movies, he's getting tired of just the same cliche over and over, and that that weariness is starting to uh, leak into his everyday life, and so he starts to see life that way. But then he meets this woman, and uh, find, and then his life starts to take on elements of like the cheesy romantic comedy cliches. Not terrible, not bad so far. I like the idea of it. That like there and and the actor. He, if anyone makes this movie work, it is him. Like he knows exactly how to play it. Like there was a scene earlier when he's talking about all the different things in romantic comedies and talks about there's, it's like I'm running. There's always running, you know, they're running after. <laughs> and there comes a moment when there's a misunderstanding between him and this woman and she's walked away and you see the conflict. He doesn't say it. There is no narration, but you see him like start to run a little bit and, but like stop. And it's like, you can tell he's like, I'm, I'm, 
damn it, I am not going to run. Ah, shit. And then he runs. <laughs> and it's so like stuff like that, not bad. Um, but she's not developed at all. Oh, that's um, so that's a bummer. And then it's like, again, they're trying to do too much. They're trying to, and like, there are moments when like, when like harsh reality comes into play. Like this guy has a niece who's 16 years old and she falls in love with this guy. And then the guy leaves her and she winds up in the hospital. Cause she tried to like kill herself or just hurt herself. And it's just like, is this like a quirky thing or not? <laughs> because that's tough. That's a right. tough thing you're doing. And it just, it never quite gels, but it's, it won me over to a certain extent just by its general tone. And by that, his performance is solid, really good. Was it a coincidence that you watched, they came together? Like you watched two sort of movies that comment on romantic comedy cliches. That's true. It uh, was a coincidence. And okay. in between H.R. Uh, Giger, who I think his paintings were about <laughs> commenting on romantic comedy cliches. Um, okay. I saw a film. You've all heard of it. Um, not that many of you have probably seen it. It's called Hot Pursuit. Uh, it stars Reese Witherspoon, Sofia Vergara, and John Carroll Lynch, um, and some other people. But those are the main stars yeah. whose names I know. And uh, it's I, I found it to be dreadful. I know there are critics out there who are defending it. Very few. I think it's about seven percent in Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. But um, like one of my favorite critics of the past ten years, that I still read all the time, Stephanie Zaharik, mm-hmm. loved it. And uh, to me, when I read that someone I really respect loved it. It actually makes me feel better thinking about the times that I have a critic may have also been dead wrong about something. It's sure. okay. It's okay to occasionally be dead wrong. Even if you're Stephanie Zaharik or David Bax. So do you, <laughs> do you find yourself, does it give you pause a little bit? Not that, not like, Oh, maybe I'm wrong, but more just like, well, maybe there is something there that I didn't notice or something that didn't hit me a certain way. Not that it would redeem the movie a hundred percent in your eyes. I don't know that I think of it that way. I think part of it is something that you and I have talked about before, which you can't really do anything about, which is just the fact that comedy is subjective. And there are things you know, you and I talked, uh, off mic, uh, not only off mic, but, uh, at front of the show, Jason Eakin's wedding. Indeed. We talked about how for us personally, you and I have this in common. The hardest thing to sit through is a movie that is trying to be funny and is not. Ugh. It's like, I'd rather watch. Did I, what did I say? Did I say this? I'd rather watch cannibal Holocaust. I'd, I believe so. I'd rather watch something that is, you know, testing the limits of taste than sit through a movie yeah. that is failing at, and where you can just see the flop sweat and the desperation. Yeah. It's the, it's, it makes a movie feel like even though, you know, hot pursuit is 87 minutes. It makes it feel when a movie is like that, it makes it feel like it's, an eternity when yeah. I'm sitting through something like that. And this is just nothing but that there's all like, there's <coughs> like, there's a part where they're trying to be quiet. So they don't get caught by the redneck with the gun, which is uh, stupid. So Reese Witherspoon is trying to give direction by using hand motions. Like she's saying, she's like, like go there and grab the thing and do the thing. And Sophia Vergara is just like, misunderstanding everything. It's like, what you want me to fix the bunny rabbit ears or something like that? Like, and it goes on forever because it's like, oh, this would be funny if they did that. And it's that, pretty right? much quiet, right? Yeah. Because uh, they can't, because she's hand signals. So so you're just watching, a, like, just, you can literally hear crickets in the theater at that point, I assume, <laughs> right, right? right. But, but it's, it, it's the sort of thing where, like, they had the, 
they had the premise for the scene and then said to Reese Witherspoon and Sofia Vergara, both very talented actors. Sure. I'm a huge fan of Reese Witherspoon, actually, but maybe not the best comedic improvisers just said, yeah. run, run with this. And they can't do it. And there's stuff like that throughout. And there's the other thing that is so clunky to me. It seems clear to me there was a draft of this movie that someone looked at and said there are not enough laughs in this. There are not enough jokes. Oh, yeah. And so there are joke lines like tags to scene, t- tags to scenes that are clearly ADR'd in. Like yeah. there's like <laughs> there's one part where there's some sort of, uh, sh- you know, at the beginning she's working in the evidence room. She's not like a field officer. And she says something about finding a rac- raccoon in the evidence room and there's a joke or whatever. And then the scene ends with her signing the papers for the police report the evidence thing and you hear her put like a tag to the raccoon thing that you like you never see your mouse clearly that wasn't there in the original thought they didn't shoot that on the day that was written and added in later because they decided we'd need more jokes in this movie there's a wonderful Patton oswalt bit about being a writer who's like oh the film is is done it's already done yeah but we need more jokes so we're gonna have people say it off screen yeah um so I, I'm sorry to my apologies to Stephanie Zaharik, but I can't recommend Hot Pursuit. Um, I can recommend staying away from Hot Pursuit. Uh, the other movie I watched um, that I liked more than you did okay. is called Going Clear, Scientology in the Prison of oh, Belief. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, everything like like with Hot Pursuit and comedy, everything is subjective. And I think part, part of it is the fact that I didn't actually know that much about Scientology made this mm. a much more compelling film to me. I think that does make a difference. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had heard things about. I had heard the word like words like suppressive person and the idea of yeah. trying to keep people away and trying to make it hard for people to leave. But the things about the Sea Org members forced to like sleep on urine soaked mattresses and sleep two hours a day or whatever. I didn't know anything about that. And I also didn't know, I mean, I'd seen the master, but I didn't know like how, how much of the master was drawn from the actual beginnings of Scientology. Yeah. I didn't like the stuff at the be- early in the movie that takes place in the fifties that details the actual founding and growth of Scientology yeah. was the most, maybe the most interesting part to me. Cause I didn't know about all that stuff. And when you see footage of L Ron Hubbard, you think, <laughs> Hey, look at film, Philip Seymour Hoffman underplaying it. Um, it's, yeah. Right. Yeah. That to me the film is at its most powerful when we're just seeing footage of the guys themselves. Whether it be uh Hubbard or David Miscavige or anything like that. Like that to me is when it works the best. Yeah. Um or that footage of like Tom Cruise that and I don't know. It's uh, I did a whole episode of more than one lesson about it. Um okay. that uh, I think with the companion film of The Wicker Man. Um and uh yeah, I felt like the film could have been a lot more. I, I'd be interested in reading the book because almost anything that they, anytime they interviewed the author, I loved what he had to say. And so I think I'd be uh, interested in reading that. I also love, I was surprised myself by how much I loved Paul Haggis. Yeah. And part of it is just that that guy has a fantastic speaking voice. Like, I yeah. know he's a director, he's a behind the yeah. scenes guy, but I wanted to be like, have you thought about doing narration or voiceover, yeah. like books on tape? Or, I can kind of listen to you talk all yeah. day. Or counseling. Like, he has a very <laughs> right. therapeutic voice, yeah. doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it sounds very sympathetic and, and yeah. that sort of thing. Um, and then I also liked um, Jason. I never know how you say his last name. Beggy, I Beggy. think. Yeah. He's, a, he's a delight, too. <laughs> yeah. The opposite. Go, going the exact Hagen's. opposite as far as voices go. Uh, um, yeah. All right, yeah what's I, next to, what's I recently next? saw Jason Beggy, somewhat recently, in uh, Monkey Shines, okay. George Romero's film. And he's great in it. That movie's a, a 
complete, completely flabbergasting to me, but he's really good in it. Next for me, uh, just a, it's all rewatches now. Okay. Uh, and I started with Chinatown, which I had not seen in a while. So I threw that on and, well, we kind uh, of, you kind of saw it at my wedding, right? I did. Yeah. So no sound, but we projected it during the reception. Yeah. I feel like I got it. Yeah. That's um, how cool my wedding was, by the way. Yeah. We projected Chinatown and Barton Fink above the dance floor yeah. with the sound off. Yeah. And I believe I referenced Chinatown in my speech. I believe yeah. I led with, uh, yeah, let's have one of the best movies of all time <laughs> playing behind me. That won't steal focus at all. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, what am I going to say about Chinatown except it's amazing? And every time I watch it, I, I see something different, whether it be in a specific performance or, or just uh, the music hits me a different way. Chinatown is just, it is the gift that keeps on giving. Every time you watch it, or every time I watch it, I just love it anew. And, you know, I haven't made my top 100 in a while. It's been a couple years now, and I have no doubt that Chinatown will come right back, come roaring back in to my top 10. Um, when's the last time you saw it? I mean, not counting my wedding last year. Um, I oh, right. I'm sorry. So September. Got it. Yeah. I honestly don't know that I've watched it since I moved to Los Angeles, which has been 10 years now. Or it'll be yeah. 10 years in, I've been here 10 years since September. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's been 10 years. Boy, you got to rewatch it. It's, man. And listeners, if you haven't seen it, and I have to assume most of you have, but if you haven't seen it, man, look. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David is distracting me. Um, but yeah, just, uh, it's, it's, a, an absolutely astounding film. Okay. Um, moving right along to a film that I saw last week. That's, we're catching up to last week. Now. Okay. That's how close we are. I'm, I'm now within the last few days. Um, I saw a film called Testament of Youth. Okay. Which is a World War II, uh, world, I'm sorry, that's wrong. A World War One drama, um, based on a, a memoir called Testament of Youth, which is about a woman who... Um, both her fiance and her brother died in world war one and she worked as a nurse both first in London for returning soldiers and then eventually just off the front lines in, in, in France, um, during the war. And, uh, I'd love to read the memoir. It sounds very interesting. The movie itself is pretty, pretty stiff. Um, despite a great cast, um, the, the lead, uh, Vera Britton is her name is played by Alicia Vikander recently mm-hmm. of Ex, Ex Machina, her fiance. And apparently I think six other movies this year. Uh, yeah, this is a big year for her. She's having a real Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain yeah. Um, uh, and then her, her brother is no, no, I'm sorry. Her fiance is played by, um, what's his name? Uh, Kit Harrington, uh, Jon Snow. Oh, okay. And then her brother is played by Taron Egerton from Kingsman, right? Oh yeah, yeah. isn't that his name? Who played, yeah, I think so. Played Eggs, Eggsy, yeah. in in Kingsman. Um, her, let's see, her father is Dominic um, from The Wire, Dominic uh, West. West. Uh, her mother is Emily Watson. Um, Jon Snow's mother is the woman who played Duckface in Four Weddings and a Funeral. I always forget her name. She's a fantastic actress. Oh, yeah. I always forget her name. Um, But, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of hers. And even uh, Agent Carter herself has a small role Mm -hmm. um, as another nurse. Um, So it's a great cast. It's, you know, really, it's never, it's not, it's two hours and ten minutes, which is long, but it's, it moves along nice, and having a great cast and having these locations is all, good and all well and good, but it's, 
uh, it's handsome to the point of being kind of airless and yeah. the dialogue is really on the nose. When I write my review, uh, luckily I, I, I take notes now when I, during, during screenings really? and, some of what I do is write down lines of dialogue that I want to remember, and that'll help so I can point out some of the the real clunkers. Yeah, <laughs> I guess this. I should start doing that because that is a thing that I try to remember is like certain lines of dialogue. Yeah, but basically the movie like it's two hours and ten minutes of like foreshadowing a bad thing happening, and then the bad thing happening, and then foresha- It's like a it's like this foreshadowing feedback loop yeah. for two hours and ten minutes. All right, so that's Testament of Youth. Um, the next thing going up all the way up to this. Monday. Oh boy. I saw a French film called The Connection. Oh yeah. Um although in France it's known as La French because that's weirdly the French Connection was in France known just as The French. Interesting. I guess I guess context is everything. But um it uh was interesting. I mean uh, for those who don't know it's the same French Connection from the movie yeah. The French Connection. Uh, but the France side and the story of the um, magistrate um, played by Jean Dujardin, who um, helped bring them to justice or whatever. What I didn't know, what I didn't, I, I didn't realize that at the time the French Connection movie was made, that it was they they hadn't caught the guys yet in France. That was still an ongoing thing. Yeah, because the that movie that movie came out in 1971, and this movie goes up into the early 80s. Like before they actually even caught the guys. It's a, it's again, it's a long one. It's about two hours and 15 minutes and it's, uh, kind of, um, I guess, uh, I referred to it in my review as a mini epic because it's sort of like, like Zodiac, like jumps through time right. a lot, you know, and you see certain people, um, you know, certain members of the task force sort of like leave and go work other jobs and they come back later in the film and the lives yeah. have changed. And it's that sort of thing you've seen in other movies. And that's really the main, the main thing I have to say about the connection is that it feels like, in my review, I just listed like, here's the moment from heat and here's the moment from Donnie Brasco. And here's the moment yeah. from it just, there's just a bunch of the departed, you know, there's so many crime movies that it feels like, but that said, it's a worthwhile movie and it does actually find it's, it's own sort of point of view, um, near the end when we see that the, uh, the magistrate has sort of actually before even catching the guys has sort of, stepped back from the, his own investigation to spend more time with his family. Like he's mm-hmm. still kind of involved, but it was like having the Donnie Brasco moment of like it ruining his marriage. And so he decided to prioritize his wife and kids over the investigation, yeah. even while it's still ongoing, which is something you don't normally see in movies. Um, meanwhile, the, the, his foil, the head of the French connection um, is uh, mired in the past and obsessing over he's paranoid and obsessing over his friends that have been killed over the past 10 years or whatever. And, um, he doesn't like disco music, <laughs> um, and, uh, just not being able to sort of like be in the moment at all. And so it actually, by the end, it does seem to have its own point of view. Um, it's a shame it took, it takes long to get there, but it's still an enjoyable, uh, watch and it has a great soundtrack, hmm. like some new stuff, like, uh, I never know how you say her name. Likey Lee. Do you know that singer? Um, kind of. But then it has like Al Wilson and Serge Gangsborg Borg and mm. the Velvet Underground and uh, Dinah Washington and like uh, mm. awesome music throughout. Worthwhile. All right. Um, I'm up, right? Yep. Okay. Next up for me is I rewatched Hot Fuzz. 
Oh, good. So you watched Hot Pursuit. I watched Hot Fuzz. You made the wiser choice. Uh, it would appear so. Um, yeah, so I need to... I, I've only seen Shaun of the Dead once, and I've oh. se- only seen The World's End once. Uh, I need to rewatch them uh, because, boy, do I love the way Edgar Wright makes movies. I love Hot Fuzz. I think it's amazing. I think it's hilarious. I, I find myself invested in the story and character, and yet it's still yeah. a fun parody of... And that's the thing. I, I don't think I had seen it since last year seeing The Wicker Man. Uh-huh. Have you seen The Wicker Man? I never have, no. Okay. And uh, it's very similar. And Sorry, not exactly, but in a lot of ways it is. And for and not the least of which is one of the, uh, one. I think the head of the, what do you call it, like Neighborhood Watch or whatever they call it, um, is played by the cop from the original Wicker Man. And so uh, Edward Woodward. His name is fun to say because there's a lot of D's in there. Um, And yeah, and it's just – yeah, I mean I don't know what to say except like it's just such a marvelous comedy and it's everything that – I feel like it's everything comedy can be. Like they don't leave any – like they leave it all on the field so to speak and just everything – So I mean you and I have talked about how passive comedy can be and it will still be good. Uh, like you don't have to have like fancy editing or any kind of like, you know, snap zooms or anything like that. You don't have to do that for something to be funny. And if you do do that, it can actually suck the air out of the room. But Edgar Wright manages that perfect balance yeah. of like filmmaking technique and genuine laughs. Yeah. You know, the first time I saw Hot Fuzz, I thought that I, I was like, that was good, but it seems like kind of a come down from Shaun of the Dead. But I've come to like it a lot more. But I, I, I guess I felt that it wasn't as like, it wasn't as sharp and didn't move as quickly as Shaun of the Dead. No pun intended, because I know there's zombies and they don't move ah, quickly. But um, it, it, it seemed a little more unwieldy the first time I watched it. But I think it, it's come together. I don't know if I've changed as a person, or um, I do wonder if maybe Hot Fuzz, unlike Shaun of the Dead or The World's End, is a movie that plays better at home than in the theater. Maybe. Uh, I think you and I saw it together in the theater, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think we both liked it, and I yeah, it's yeah, I liked it for sure. But I yeah. people prefer Shaun of the Dead, and then I, I don't know if anybody prefers The World's End uh, of the three. Um, yeah, I mean, I love The World's End, but it's such a bummer. That movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, um, should we move on? Sure. All right, um, I've got what else did I see? Oh, here we go. Pitch Perfect Two. I don't know. I mean, you know what? It's it's a bit of an improvement from the original um, because. It actually has uh, a, a, a sequence in it where they go, you know, sort of like in uh, in your classic sort of like uh, martial arts epic, right? Mm-hmm. They go out into the countryside for a while to just train and be with one another, yeah. right? And so, so the Avengers uh, Age of Ultron. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you get this segment where suddenly you don't have to deal with the stupid plot or all the like weird like characters that they throw in because they're so desperate to be funny and shocking when they're not. And it really is just a movie with some jokes in it. That's about a bunch of girls who are friends and mm-hmm. have some issues and they work through them. And I said in my review that if like, if the third movie is just has no plot and it's just them hanging out talking and then occasionally breaking into song, it'll be my favorite of the three by yeah. far because the worst thing that happens in this movie is when they try to be uh, in either of these movies is the the boneheaded plots and specifically especially 
the terrible sense of humor of the pitch perfect movies, which so much of it is based on, um, I didn't coin this term, but like hipster racism where it's like, yeah, I'm oh, saying yeah, yeah. racist stuff, but you know, I don't feel that way. So it's funny, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's not, it's yeah. just racism. What, what shows up in a lot of uh, modern comedy central roasts, right? Where yeah. they, are, they say some despicable things, right? But it's just sort of understood yeah. that they don't We're all mean on it. the same page. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but those are professional comedians. That's true. This has the uncomfortableness of that without the, soothing balm of it actually being funny which yeah. doesn't there's so but there are a couple of jokes that land in this one i remember i laughed definitely more at this one i i laughed didn't laugh nearly as much as the people in the theater and i'm glad they were enjoying it but um i did laugh a few times there's um there's a joke that i don't even want to like <laughs> there's in the opening sequence there's a sight gag involving garage band where you actually see a computer running garage band. And I laughed at that. And then the funniest thing in the movie that then this is the thing that like, it was the opposite of what happened the rest of the movie where everyone was laughing. And I wasn't, mm-hmm. I laughed out loud at this, but I, I don't know if it was like went too quick or people just didn't think it was as funny as I did. But the, uh, the world competition they're going to, because this is essentially mighty ducks Two, um, is in Copenhagen. And someone said, and like, the joke with one of the the leader of the Barton Bellas, this college acapella group, is that she keeps intentionally failing classes so that she doesn't have to graduate, so she can oh, remain okay. a part of the thing. So someone asks her, like, do you know where Copenhagen is? And she says, uh, no, I failed maps. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I see, you just kind of chuckle, but to me that's the funniest thing in the world, <laughs> that she failed so hard that she doesn't even know it's called geography. It's that's just, pretty funny. It's just maps to her. Uh, that's the funniest joke in the movie. All right, that's it. Um, the next thing, and the not the final thing, but close to the final thing, on my list is tales of the grim sleeper, which have you seen it? No, um, I, you should see it. You, I know you have, were you telling me about it? Uh, well, our friend, um, Josh Fadum was telling that's it. Yes. It. Yes. Um, cause he's going to be on soon. We're going to talk about that in other movies. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know about the grim sleeper case? Gosh, I guess not. I, I mean, uh, I think he told us about it. And okay. So from the mid 1980s until 2010, um, Lots and lots of young women, many of them prostitutes, but not all of them, um, were murdered in South Central Los Angeles here. Okay. And uh, the movie is, when you try to talk about it, it's so infuriating how how much the the police sort of, and the, the movie makes a pretty clear case that they intentionally did nothing about this because there were in police... Uh, Police terms uh, the the movie uncovers a not an official police term, but a, t- a term cops use apparently when the a victim is a junkie or a prostitute or something, right. which is NHI, no humans involved, oh. uh, which is horrifying, yeah. right? That these you know uh, eventually when they caught the guy, he's been he was caught for prosecuted for ten murders, but there are as many as one hundred and forty missing missing women that may have been killed by him. Um, wow, yeah, it, it's and he did it with such impunity. Like he wasn't covering his tracks. He was using the same gun for almost every murder. Uh, and which means one of the things they point out is like, uh, yeah, by by 1988, the cops knew that they had, they knew because of the ballistics from the bullets are taking out of these women that some, uh, one person was going around doing all these killings. Yeah. Then they didn't make any sort of attempt to make it clear, you know, that, the people of this neighborhood 
should have been warned to be more cautious. Hey, someone is preying on black women of this age. Yeah. You know what I mean? There was none of that. That you know how many murders these murders could have been prevented if they had just if the cops had just said, "Hey, watch out! This is going on right now." Yeah. You know, uh, it's infuriating to think about. But it's also the movie is so much more than just about this case. Uh, it's really a portrait of the neighborhood of South Central and low income black neighborhoods like it all over. Um, and just you see how many. Um, because I, I think I mean, to, in order for someone, for people like us to fully, we'll never, never having lived in a neighborhood or grown up in a neighborhood like this, we'll never fully understand what it's like there. Like the, the, just the fact that there are so many prostitutes to be murdered. is not something that you and yeah. I like encounter uh, every day. And you know, we're, yeah. You when know, you said like it's a hundred and something, yeah. my natural thought was like, well, that seems like a good percentage of the prostitutes, but I'm sure that there are like thousands. Yeah, and and you see just how many you know of the people, uh, you know where the lines blur because the this guy, in addition to murdering women, was also kind of a creep in or by our standards seemed like kind of a creep in general or kind of a low life maybe, mm-hmm. but we sort of see like, well, that maybe that's judgmental on our parts to think of him as low life. Cause we see how many other members of the community lived their lives similar to the way he did and are yeah. not murderers and are not, uh, not criminals. I mean, I guess they, if I guess if you, you know, visit prostitutes, that makes you a criminal, but that's not what I mean. You know what I mean? Um, and so, and you just see the, the, the poverty and also really hammering in the, and and Nick Broomfield couldn't have known, uh, you know, based on the timing, wouldn't have known that things like, um, uh, you know, Michael Brown and Eric Garner and uh, Gray, what's his name in uh, Freddie, Freddie Gray, Gray the, these things would happen. But the you see so much of how just how much people who live in these communities don't trust police. Yeah, and you see you see why. You know, it's not just, um, you know, one woman says. Cause you, you think, uh, Oh, it's be, you know, you hear about like slower response times in these kind of neighborhoods and that's certainly part of it. But this, but one woman says like, if you're, if you have something to report as a black person and you walk into a police station to report something else, there's a 99% chance it's going to be a miserable experience for you. Yeah. And that, that sort of thing happens all the time. That's why the, you know, the, they don't call nine one one in that neighborhood. Um, not just because the response time is too slow, but because they're putting themselves at risk by inviting yeah. cops into their neighborhood. And it's, yeah. uh, it's an, it's an infuriating movie. And, uh, Nick Broomfield, man, he can really go back and forth cause he's made some real trash and he's made some real good stuff. Remind me of what he made. Again. Well, the ones you, the good ones are the two Eileen Warnos. Documentaries. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Those are great. Yeah. You can skip the Kurt and Courtney documentary and the Biggie okay. and Tupac documentary. I mean, the okay. Biggie and Tupac, if you the Biggie and Tupac documentary, I guess, is sort of like the uh, the going clear type of thing. Where like, if you don't know the whole like story of that rivalry and what led to Biggie and Tupac both dying within you know a relatively short time, you will learn a lot from Biggie and Tupac. Yeah. But it's not a good movie in, the, yeah. in that sense. Uh, anyway, um, uh, do you have any more movies? Yeah, I've got. Two more. Well, I've got one and then a, another one with a caveat. Okay, do one and then I'll do one. Okay. Uh, this is another rewatch. Uh, Annie Hall, which I have not seen in its entirety for well over a decade. I probably haven't either. Um, and 
I'll say this. It takes me a while to get into the rhythm of Woody Allen, especially when it's him. Um, I can watch Hannah and her sisters all day long because Michael Caine's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other characters, but like he's technically he's supporting, but he's kind of a lead. Um, and then crimes and misdemeanors and sweet and low down and bullets over Broadway and that kind of thing. But when you get into Manhattan and, um, and Annie hall and stuff where it's actually not much of an ensemble, it's mostly this guy. Um, and he has a, it's, it's so, it's so interesting. Yeah. He kind of has an older sensibility as far as the type of jokes that he says. It's very Groucho in some ways. Um, (laughs) but, uh, but I think what I, I think what I had forgotten is just how many different filmmaking tricks and nuances and stuff that he employs in the film. Like he will, you know, have moments where he talks to the camera. He'll have moments that are animated. He just, he basically does all this stuff that doesn't seem like it really is a transition. I know, I think by then he had already done Manhattan and stuff, but like it really did seem like a transition from kind of silly Woody Allen who would do weird, goofy things in his films to serious Woody Allen who is like, okay, I'm going to make a movie about relationships. And this is definitely, I think a transitional film from one to the other. And I think it works really well. Once I got into the rhythm of the comedic rhythm of his character and of the filmmaker. Um, and I know that you're not a huge fan of Diane Keaton and that probably starts with Annie Hall, but in watching it, wait, have I said that before? I believe so. I wasn't a big fan of because I said so. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, (laughs) but I, yeah, I like Annie Hall. Yeah. And she, that I think a lot of the, sorry, I think a lot of the Diane Keaton isms that have come about over the last, I'm going to say 20 years or so, um, is something you and I have talked about on the show is not being thrilled with, but those hadn't started yet. And Um, I want to see her new movie, five flights up. With her and Morgan Freeman? I don't think I know about it. They, they play a longtime married couple who live in Brooklyn and mm-hmm. moved in Brooklyn when it wasn't what it is now. Yeah. And now they're finding that this this apartment they've owned for years is now worth a lot of money. And so they're, at you know, later in their life deciding whether or not to sell their apartment because they could make a huge profit on it yeah. at this time. But it's also where they've lived their life for decades. Hmm. So that sounds, sounds good. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, Annie Hall is just, I mean, obviously people know it's a good movie, but I think I had forgotten just how good it is. Uh, and when I think of my favorite Woody Allen, I think I usually go Hannah and her sisters, crimes and misdemeanors or sweet and low down. Um, but now that I have watched Annie Hall, it's like, it's hard to, it's hard to not point to that one and see, uh, just, it's invigorating to watch a filmmaker in transition. Um, and that's kind of what I, among other things, what I get out of the film and the, the re- central relationship of the film is also very interestingly explored. I need to watch it again because at this point, when I think of the thing with the lobsters, I yeah. now think of 21 jump street. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I need to watch Annie Hall again to recalibrate my yeah, references. Yeah. That's a good call. Um, uh, my one rewatch, I need to rewatch more stuff. I need to get good at that. My one rewatch, um, is Charlie Chaplin's modern times. Oh, which yeah. I haven't seen since college. Um, and which I love, uh, I probably liked it even more now than I did then because I'm, uh, I don't know. We talk, well, we talk about run times a lot. We will be talking about run times again soon, mm-hmm. but, um, modern times is not a very long movie. I mean, I guess compared to like the Buster Keaton features of that time, sure. it's actually pretty long cause it's almost 90 minutes. I think modern yeah. times is like 83 minutes or something like that. Um, is that right? I, I don't remember, but it flies by. Yeah. Um, and I, you think, 
oh, our sensibilities have changed. You know, like when we watch action movies from, you know, you watch the action scenes in like the, the karate scene in the Manchurian candidate is so, it seems so clumsy now yeah. because they're used to this fast action. But for some reason, Charlie Chaplin films still hold up. But what I wanted to say about it, not only that, yeah, it's funny and everything. Everyone knows that. Um, and there's things like the roller skating on the edge of that big uh, mm-hmm. drop, which is just like, I don't know, uh, delightfully unnerving to watch. Yeah. But I wanted to address something about Charlie Chaplin that sometimes is uh, wielded as a cudgel against him, which is um, his what people describe as his sentimentality. Mm-hmm. Uh, in rewatching Modern Times with that in mind, I think what people are referring to as sentimentality, which it is, but I think what it really comes from is a fiercely leftist sensibility. Yeah. And I think so. Yeah, he's sentimental, but he's sentimental about the poor and workers and yeah. people who have to scrape by. And, you know, they're like he and his, he and the, the, uh, I don't know how you pronounce the, what he, what the title cards refer to the girl as Gamine, Gamin, Gamin. Oh yeah. I you know don't know. I, I don't yeah, know how I don't you pronounce know. that word. Um, but they're, they're criminals. They're constantly committing crimes the entire movie. Yeah. And the movie completely forgives them. And it, it like almost takes uh, as like as gospel uh, or, or, or to, just takes it as read that, uh, well, what they're doing is justified because the world has shit on them. Yeah. And, um, uh, so I guess I, that was something I hadn't, I hadn't watched the Charlie Chaplin film with that in mind, specifically saying like looking at, am I going to be bothered by the sappiness of this movie? Like some, chaplain decriers are yeah uh and i found that uh, i line up a lot with <laughs> what this guy has to say i tend to think uh that he overdoes it but i guess if we're rooting this in his politics then i guess i would think that <laughs> right um but uh and uh, man you gotta watch some harold lloyd i think you'd love it i think you would love it okay but um but there's a story that i really like uh that i think kind of sums up some of my feelings about chaplin and of course comedically i think he's amazing um and, and as a filmmaker, I think he's amazing. But, um, but yeah, there's a story uh, of there's a big Hollywood party happening, but it's all it's it's a bunch of people sitting at a table, a long table, and Chaplin is just holding court, like is just is just uh, you know railing about the social injustice, and you know that's fine. Uh, but clearly, everyone's just paying close attention to him, and just can't you know they're just hanging on every word, and he knows it, and he's very happy about that. And at one point, <laughs> at one point he's like, he's like, I just want like, I don't remember exactly. It's like the broadest possible thing. He's just like, it's like, I just think the poor should be fed and have houses. And then Buster Keaton from down the table says, Charlie, do you know anybody who doesn't want that? <laughs> and it just like completely <laughs> takes the air out of it. And it's just, and to me, it's like, undoubtedly, Buster Keaton always running a bit behind Chaplin as far as seen as a genius and that kind of thing. Like they, maybe that's part of it, but I think that to me is that speaks not merely to the way Chaplin saw himself as a political figure, but also as a filmmaker, like we got to really hit this. Like you don't actually need to do that if you don't want to. And I, but I think uh, to me, I think he mostly earns it. Um, I think he, I think he's a little bit too, a, a little bit much, but like in the kid, you know, well, I've seen the kid. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Oh, is that the one I need to watch? Is that the one that's going to try test me? No, no. I mean this in a good oh, way. Okay. Like the, you know, he loves this little kid played by Jackie Coogan, Coogan, grandfather of friend of the show, Keith Coogan. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so I'm saying we're kind of friends with Chaplin. Yeah. And so, yeah, three uh, degrees. yeah. And so, um, 
Yeah, and so he, he's taking care of this kid, and the kid gets taken away, and he gets reunited with the kid, and like there's tears from the kid, from Chaplin. It's really powerful stuff, and I feel like it's completely earned. And so I think that more than anything, again, sometimes I think it's over. I think he overplays it, but when he earns it, as I think he does specifically in City Lights, which I think is probably my favorite of his, uh, I think I'm completely on board. All right, I need to watch more Chaplin. That's great stuff. I I've have, seen. I've seen. Yeah, I haven't seen. I have City, City Lights, Lights Gold Rush, and Modern Times, and I've I also Gold have The Great Rush. Dictator. I've seen Gold Rush and The Great Dictator. I've seen Modern Times twice now. Okay. Um, of those, I think uh, Modern Times is probably my favorite. But apparently, I need to see City Lights and the Kid real bad. Yeah, and I've seen a handful of shorts. Uh, so here's my caveat. So I saw is the, caveat the right name word. I th- I don't know. It's. Uh, it's a film with a caveat. I saw The Room, okay, but I saw the Riff Tracks live version of The Room. So that it feels like overkill. That's a, yeah. That seems like one of my favorite terms, gilding the lily. It's, it's a good one, yes. Um, I enjoyed it. I thought it was very, very funny. Um, and that's the thing. So because I saw it like in a Riff Tracks or an MST3K kind of way, I, it always feels wrong to say that, oh, I watched this movie. Right, yeah. Um, but I did sit and watch something for two hours. Um, and, uh, I enjoyed it tremendously. I like what those guys do. Um, there are times when I feel like riff tracks makes a, not a bad choice, but an odd choice where they're they're like, let's do one for the dark night. And it's like, okay. Now, but in doing so, it's not a film that can't be made fun of. Certainly any movie can be made fun of, but I feel like there's enough in it that really works that I feel like now you're going to be stretching in order to make your jokes. Right. And there are plenty of movies out there that can be easily made fun of and right. the room. And what's interesting to go back to what you were saying earlier about uh, hot pursuit. So even though I was watching the room in a theater full of people and we're all laughing and then they're also on top of that, they're also making, you know, the guys are making jokes and we're laughing at that. The moment there's a scene. Have you seen the room? No. Okay. There's a scene that is meant for comedy. Oh, <laughs> and in that moment they have no jokes to make. Cause they, I think the guys are just like, let's just see how this plays out. They don't say it that way, but like <laughs> they don't speak over it. And, and I literally was so, it was so cringe inducing that I like averted my eyes from the screen. Like yeah. I looked down and just rubbed my eyes cause it was so horrible. Like I could watch any horrendous melodrama and get enjoyment out of it because I'm laughing. But with that, it's like crickets in the room. It groans. There are groans in the theater. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, that's what happens when you try to get something that's funny and it's, and it just falls totally flat. That's fu- like, it's funny that you averted your eyes. Cause I, and watch when I watched hot pursuit, there's, there's a part where to get out of a pickle, they have to pretend to be lesbians and make out. <laughs> it's the worst. And I literally, I took off my glasses. I was like, yeah. if I'm going to deal with this, it's, I'm not going to see it in focus. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's basically, it's like, all right, I can at least I'll offend one sense, which is hearing. I don't right. have to look at this thing. Yeah. So, uh, because our power might go out soon, we should hurry up. Yeah, we should. Um, I'm on to TV. I don't know how much you have. I don't want to spend too much time. I've got on TV. four things on TV. Okay. So I will start with, um, inside Amy Schumer has been just a runaway train of awesomeness. I shouldn't say runaway train after eight people died. Um, Oh boy. Recently. Oh um, boy. It's going twice the speed limit. They were supposed to go. Yeah. And the engineer says he has no memory of, the you know because he was also thrown from the thing or whatever 
uh, yeah, it's a crazy, sad story. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially at a time when transportation infrastructure is such a big part of, yeah. Anyway, we just said we needed to hurry up and now I'm already taking this off. I think, uh, but yeah, inside Amy Schumer has been so fantastic this season. And so, uh, I mean, if you ever want to see a, like the, the right way to balance being unapologetic in your message delivery system and yeah. also never sacrificing the laughs. Yeah. In Sending Me Schumer this week, this, this season has done episode after episode. Uh, it's, it's so great. There was one, um, well the, the, um, have you, did you watch the last fuckable day sketch that, uh, um, that, that made its way around? Uh, I didn't, uh, okay. friends told me about it and okay. said so, that it was good. Not great. Who are these friends? We, we see we have different friends because no. my friends can't stop. Uh, uh, Just uh, honestly, they seem to they seem to talk about. And again, I haven't seen it, so I may enjoy it, but that it seemed to be more like, hey, look at all these like big stars talking about this thing. And that it seemed to get more from that than the actual premise of the of the sketch. I, I disagree, but okay. they are great. It's big. It's Tina Fey, Julie Louis-Dreyfus, Patricia Arquette. Yeah. Uh, and then there was also the episode length sketch. That was the 12 angry men parody, which yeah. film fans have to watch because it's in addition to how funny it is and how, uh, I mean, it's to be honest, that episode is less joke heavy than your average inside Amy Schumer. Yeah. Um, but how incisive it is, it's still very funny, but also just how perfect a parody it is. Like yeah. how did you watch it? No, but I saw, I saw like a little minute and a half trailer for it and okay. even like costume choices yep. and camera placement. Yeah. Like it's perfect. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, there are little things like, uh, well, you know, you know, the part there's two switchblades sticking out of the table. Yeah. It's not switchblades inside Amy Schumer. It's something else. Um, and then the part of like, uh, you know, just measuring out steps from, you know, with how many steps away from the door a person is. Uh, but of course there's a twist on everything. It's, it's been, it's been great. Um, this most recent episode had some more subtle, uh, I think, uh, I don't know if feminist is, but feminine points of view things. There was, uh, it was, Amy was one of four women on a panel of all female scientists. Mm -hmm. And the joke was that every time that they couldn't, they couldn't even get to what they're supposed to be talking about. Cause every time they accidentally talk over one another or need a glass of water or the mic feeds back, they go, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So it's just <laughs> these incredibly brilliant, incredibly accomplished women constantly apologizing for themselves. Yeah. Uh, very funny premise. Very well done. Uh, what's, what's up for you? Uh, so we are nearing the end of survivor. Um, actually maybe I won't say that yet because we did get to the season finale of Gotham. So I'll, I'll talk about Gotham first. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Back to you. Okay. <laughs> you, uh, you, you threw me off here. Uh, the last man on earth ended. Um, I mean the season it is coming back mm -hmm. and, uh, it's, did like, you come around on it or I did, but it doesn't, you know, we talked, Paul and I talked about this. Yeah. Hearing uh, there are a lot of people who were in the same boat I was really liking the show at first and then not liking it uh, for much of the middle of the season. People making the argument that like, oh, where it got to makes the other episodes better in retrospect. Uh, I uh, I can get very dogmatic about how TV should be watched and appreciated, and that's my problem sometimes. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's possible. I think episodes of TV should stand alone 
um, in terms of quality. Now you don't have to stand alone the story or anything like that, but um, I don't think one episode of television can retroactively affect either positively or negatively the quality of a different episode. That's just uh, one of the tenets of how I watch TV. So yes, I do think it got better again, but that doesn't mean I forgive it for sucking for six weeks or whatever, or six episodes because they ran them so quickly yeah. that they put, they did like two episodes a night, most nights, uh, which uh, also annoys me. But um, do you hear about the new Netflix show, the six episode series between No, that is airing one episode a week. Nice. Fantastic. How very exciting. Apparently they read my thing and yeah. I'm having an effect. Okay. So that's the last man on earth. What's next for you? Uh, I will go with Community, which has been... I won't say it's been hitting it out of the park, but I really like what they've been doing. Like, they just... Dan Harmon just seems to really be thriving in this circumstance. Uh, the freedom that Yahoo seems to have allowed him, he doesn't go, he doesn't go overboard with it or anything like that, but... But, I don't know. Like, he still seems to find things to explore in the reality of the show and with the characters. And I don't know. And I can't even, I can't even really like point to any one thing. I just, it's not the best show of the uh, of the series. Sorry. It's not the best season of the series. It is a, but it's really solid and I'm genuinely surprised. I had no, I had no expectation it was going to be this good. So it's, I don't know. So if you, if if you are listening to this and you are a community fan, but you haven't watched what's on the the new season, uh, seek it out. I mean, I never watched the show regularly at all, but I have noticed a distinctive drop in conversation about it in the corners of the internet where it used to be discussed. Yeah. I, I find that very weird that people aren't talking about it. I think as, as cast members would drop out, I think people just assumed like it can't be what it was, which is true as far as certain character dynamics. But, but as Padgett far as Brewster, you got Padgett Brewster and, and Keith David and Keith David. Pretty good. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, adventure time has, has, uh, aired a bunch of new episodes recently. A couple of them, I mean, Adventure Time's always good in one way or another, but a couple of them really good. One was called Germain, in which um, one of my favorite living people, Tom Sharpling, voices uh, uh, Jake's brother, Germain. Hmm. And um, Tom Sharpling's comedy partner, John Worcester, even got a couple scenes in there nice. as, a, as a demon. Um, and there were little, I, I think, very small in-jokes for Sharpling and Worcester fans, because mm-hmm. um, Worcester's demon was named Bryce, who is a character from the uh, best show on WFMU World. And he also... At one point, does he say, why? (laughs) No, he doesn't. But he does say something that Worcester says a lot, which was, it was sick. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Because he's a demon and he destroys Jermaine's like Teddy Ruxpin style teddy bear. And he's like, what happened to whatever is it? And he goes, I ate his face. It was sick. (laughs) (laughs) Beyond that, it was actually a really great episode. Um, And they've also, they did another one. I don't don't know how much of Adventure Time you've seen. Have you seen any of the Grables episodes where they're like, Emo Phillips voices the guy hosting the like, I know that Adventure Time is already only 11 minutes to begin with, but the Grables episodes are five short stories uh, in one episode. So this was a twist on the Grables episode where that still had five stor- short stories in it, but the book ends with the Emil Phillips character where the real story and he became the protagonist of the episode and used the lessons from the Grables, the five short stories okay. that he shows to keep from being uh, murdered by aliens. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, but it, we also find out that 
Emo Phillips character when he's hosting these episodes is actually from the distant future. And so he returns to Ooh and we get like in the middle of all this like madcap funniness, we get some sort of devastating pictures of like, Oh, one day, you know, Ooh itself will go under its own apocalypse and everything we know about it. The candy kingdom will be in ruins and uh, the tree house will be gone. And like, it's It's very sad. It's very disturbing in a way that I love about adventure time. Uh, What's next for you? Uh, I will now talk about survivor because I want to save amazing race. Um, Okay. The one thing we both watch. Yeah. Um, And uh, I have a couple more things. This season of survivor is very interesting. Uh, People have called it goat Island because there's a lot of goats. Well, because the players themselves are goats. That's what they call somebody that you take to the end who can't possibly win because you're taking them so you can sacrifice them like a goat. I see. And uh, this is mostly, yeah, like the last, for the last several episodes, it's like, oh, there's really only one guy that if he wins, I'll be happy. There's a woman that if she wins, I'll be fine. If anybody else wins, this will be considered one of the worst seasons ever. Um, and I really hope that, but the thing is the guy who I want to win a, he's a genuinely good player. He's really savvy. He's not great and he's not perfect, but he's really, really, uh, he's just able to read people very well. And I just, I like him a lot. And so, but everyone's gunning for him. I do not see there's only one episode left. It's a two hour season finale. I do not see how he can make it to the end unless he just keeps winning immunity. And if he does, he wins the whole thing. But like I just, and it's frustrating the idea of him going because if he goes, I, I, I feel like I have no reason to watch <laughs> to, to keep watching. Cause it's just such miserable people. How long the, until the next one? The uh, fall? Yeah. Yeah. And they are doing a neat thing where uh, they're ma- they're for the next season. They have put thirty-two possible uh, sixteen men, sixteen women that have been on the show before once and have not won. So it's called. So the next season is called Survivor Second Chances. They've put these sixteen, these thirty-two out there, and then we, the viewers, can vote every day for ten men and oh, wow. ten women. And uh, so yeah, I'm actually very excited. Are you, are you voting? I am. Not every day. But uh, when I think of it, I am because there's there's a couple people that I am very personally invested in seeing again because I remember thinking like, oh, that person would be great if they played again. And one of them is like a, a guy named Jeff Varner who's from season two. So then this will be season thirty one. So the game has changed a little bit. But I remember thinking like he would be very good. And then he kind of got screwed by rules in Survivor that are no longer the case. So like, huh. were he to if he were to play now. If that season were to happen now, then that rule would not have applied. And so, um, yeah, it's uh, so I'm I'm very interested to see what happens. Okay, uh, I'm going to rock it through a few, and then we can talk okay. to amazing talk about amazing race. Uh, Outlander is back, and I don't know if it's it, is that what you tweeted that was like the worst thing you've seen all season. Oh, we'll get to that. Okay, um, but in general, I don't know if it's been because it's. It split up its first season, so it did eight last fall, and now it's doing another eight episodes. Um, and I don't know if it's worse or if maybe just the bloom is off the rose in a way, mm-hmm. because it, I mean, Outlander is not like other shows on TV. It's beautifully produced, but also completely free of irony, unabashedly romantic, yeah. Um, and uh, but still smart, and also um, it's a 
it's a show. Unlike, you know, people, people talk about the, the imbalance in nudity on like HBO all mm-hmm. the time. Um, and, uh, Outlander is a sexy show on stars that is very much, very much represents the feminine gaze. You know okay. what I mean? Um, and that, that makes it so much unlike other things that I've, I've loved it for a long time. And I kind of feel like I'm just not getting excited about it this season. And then, yeah, this past week they did a thing. And I don't know, this feels like the kind of thing that was probably in the book and they included because it was in the book, but just doesn't work on camera mm-hmm. where, it takes. I'll, I'll try to get to the backstory. The, her husband is missing, and we. He, but he, he was kidnapped by the British, but he's escaped. And we know he's living out in the woods, but we don't know where he is. Mm-hmm. So they're going from town to town, trying to draw attention to themselves. She and this other guy named Murtaugh draw attention to themselves to try and get. So Jamie knows where they are, and the way they're drawing attention to themselves is becoming a like dancing and singing act, and going from town to town and dancing like at pubs and stuff. And it just, it's like this doesn't work. This, yeah. this doesn't fit with the show that I'm watching, seeing her like sing because she's from the 1940s right. and it's, you know, it's a time travel show. Yeah. So she's singing like, this sounds so embarrassing. She's singing like Scottish songs of the era, but to the tune of the boogie woogie bugle boy of company B, Ugh. which would have been a big song. It like, makes sense. It would have been a big deal when she went back yeah, to yeah. town, but it's just like, it doesn't fit. It, it it was uh, i spent that episode just like with my mouth open like a gape like how did they think this was gonna come across uh anyway so that's outlander the okay the maybe the best thing not the best thing because broad city is still the best thing but maybe the best thing i've watched on tv this season is a show that i talked about when it started called wolf hall a oh, yeah, series. Yeah miniseries on PBS and it, uh, it just ended on Sunday and holy shit, it's so good. And that last episode is such a doozy. I mean, you know what, you know what's going to happen. Yeah. And Belinda gets her head cut off. Yeah. We all know that from like third grade history or whatever that, uh, and Belinda gets her head cut off. But seeing that, like, this is what the entire season was leading up to and seeing it as basically depicting Thomas Cromwell as a guy who was, motivated by a sense of vengeance because of what the Boleyns had done to his uh, benefactor and friend, Cardinal Wolsey. Mm-hmm. And then seeing him that motivates him for six episodes and then seeing where it gets, where it ends up with the, the execution of a young woman. Yeah. Um, and you see, you know, he doesn't like break down or anything, but you have this, you get this impression of like, of him being like, is this really what I wor- I've worked years yeah. for? And did I really like want because the, the, the execution scene is not, you know, it's not over quickly. It's not, uh, easy to deal with. It's a, it's, it's brutal. Uh, I mean that it's still PBS. You don't actually see the head cut off. Like it's game no. of Thrones or anything, but like you feel awful for this woman who is about to get her head cut off. Um, and you kind of, and then Cromwell, who's like been your hero the whole time. You're like, you did this, like you made this happen. Yeah. It's heavy shit. And it's hmm. so good. Boy, oh boy. Yeah. So yeah, Wolf Hall is the shit. Okay. It's, uh, yeah. And then, um, Nashville ended its third season last night. It's still fun. Um, it's, it ends on what it thinks is a cliffhanger, but I've seen enough TV in my life that I know exactly what's happening. Okay. So, uh, yeah, basically, 
one guy who's our one of the late leads of the show has liver cancer and his sister who has been on the show a few times over the past two seasons mostly as kind of a villain has a change of heart and decides to donate her liver the end of the episode is i have some bad news has been a complication and we're supposed to like are we supposed to oh my god did deacon die no obviously his sister died that's <laughs> it's tv this is how it works yeah so now we have to wait now i have to wait four months to find out that yeah i was right deacon's fine because he's you know charles Essen signed a seven-year contract or whatever um, and uh yeah his sister's not gonna be on the show anymore which you know she wasn't a very deep character anyway she yeah. actress did a fine job but there wasn't that much use for her other than as an occasional antagonist i know how this stuff works yeah um anyway uh i guess i should have said spoiler for people who haven't watched because it just aired so i feel bad mm. but uh who cares um all right, let's talk about the Amazing Race. All right, I feel like there's not a whole lot to say. What now, we are now towards, we've got one more episode until the end of the season. So, what do you think of the season? Uh, I love it actually, and I love um, the way this blind date thing has played out. Even though, I mean, a part of me loves that it has so not played out the way that CBS and Phil apparently wanted it to. Yeah, no one has like found love except for maybe those two. Except Jeff maybe, and Jackie, maybe. Maybe, yeah, um, but. I I I don't think that CBS could or or the producers, you know, uh, Jared Bruckheimer or Bertram Van Munster or whatever could yeah. have foreseen what we learned about the Amazing Race based on this blind date thing, which is that the connections that the teams have to each other, uh, you know, familial or friendship or romantic or whatever, yeah. are more hindrances than yeah. assets. It's kind of a liability. Yeah. Like, yeah, you have a shorthand, but you also know that like oh, this is exactly like, oh, they're messing this up the way they messed up dinner a couple months ago. Like, it's just that kind of thing. And yeah, this is just like the time I told you to get the tire fixed. Yeah. 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 And it's just, and, and so we watch Haley and Blair uh-huh. and she basically, she reacts as though they have an old relationship. Uh-huh. And it's like, I told you, you never listen, blah, blah, blah. But because they don't have that history and there's no assumption that they're going to have to make things work. Yeah. It's like he's able to just let it kind of roll off his back. He knows there's an expiration date on this. He can see the light at the end of the tunnel and it might have a million dollars at it. So he's just going to take it. Yeah. And And it's it's made them a better team. It has. It's yeah. I feel like they're fascinating. I feel like they're going to win now. Right. Like, I mean, it could go any way, but if you want to just look at, and I don't like to put it in these terms, but I've, learn this from like the idea of survivor if you want to just look at the edit Mm -hmm. jenny and jelani are not going to win because i don't know who they are uh it could be any of the other three teams but if you want to look at arc Uh Haley and blair are the winners or truck stop Um, yeah i mean and at this point uh we i mean is it it is it a two hour episode this week or is there just a mid episode elimination? I think it's a two hour episode, okay, so but I'm, I might be wrong with like, you know, their bunching tactics and stuff like that. We don't any, theoretically any of the four teams have a chance to sure. Absolutely. Um, who are, who's the one we're leaving out? Laura and oh, Tyler. Laura and Tyler, my, yeah. my favorite team. Yeah. My, uh, mine too. And I feel like they could do well, but I feel like they, they've been starting to stumble lately. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to speak to like one thing that absolutely won't happen. That's the exact thing that happens. But, right. <laughs> but I do feel like they, you know, the editors give you hints throughout, uh, because they have a story to tell and they yeah. want it to be satisfying to us. And the idea, you know, you and I started being like, Oh, I can't even, 
And and me and Jen's just like, I can't stand to watch Haley and Blair for two seconds. But after a while, they start incorporating more scenes of playfulness. Yeah. And just the idea of these two guys, these two people like laughing at just how much they don't get along and <laughs> they, they bond over how much they don't like each other. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, and it's like, that's an arc and they're building that. And so it's like, and the perfect capper would be these two assholes yeah. that hate each other just won the amazing race. Yeah. Now that might not happen, but I feel like that seems to be what they've been leading us to. Um, and I, yeah. And I love the idea of something so completely opposite of what was clearly the intention of yeah. the season. Yeah. Uh, just as you know, my, the, my inner high school anarchist loves the idea of that. Happening. Oh, sure. Um, it's just like, they didn't find love. They hated each other and they still won assholes. What do you think of that? <laughs> um, Okay, yeah, so I, I think I like the season overall. I do want to talk real quick about the... Uh, I'm bad with the team names. You have to help me. But the two who got engaged. Huh. Matt and Ashley. Matt and Ashley. Yeah. Um, I, I like I them. love them. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, th- we don't, I don't think I have a lot in common with them. We probably wouldn't be close friends yeah, if we knew really. each other. But I really enjoyed them. And my wife said it best. She was like, these two are perfect for each other. <laughs> um, but maybe my favorite thing that happened all season... Uh, I hope people, there are people listening now who haven't watched the show, so I can explain this. But one of the one of the tasks was sorting potatoes, and they okay. had to sort five different kinds of potatoes, bring them to a vendor, yeah. and put them in five different slots. Yeah. And if they were wrong, the vendor would not say, no, you're wrong. She would open up the bottom of the slot so all the potatoes they yeah, sorted so they would fall. Yeah, do it all over again. Right. Now, when this happened to most teams, as soon as she pulled the thing, they were like, oh, I guess we got it wrong. Yeah. When she pulled the team in that, Matt goes... Why did she do that? Yeah. yeah. Jen <laughs> thought that was hilarious. She laughed out loud. And she was like, why would she do that? Like, <laughs> is the clue going to drop down? <laughs> yeah. What's, what's going on here? Yeah, okay. So ridiculous. we'll talk about more. Hopefully we'll get back on track with these, um, uh, th- these movie journals. It'll be two weeks It'll before be we do another weeks. one, yeah. but that's not nearly as long as this. Yeah. This is, was this the longest movie journal yet? Close. I think we did one that was very long, but uh, okay. right, probably right around here. Well, that's it. Bye. Bye.